Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And the time is now. I'm Krista. Krista now. And we are here live in Malibu with my guests today, Shoshana Cox, Sheena G, and Dina Storm. Unfortunately, Dina Storm has a little problem with her vocal cords and won't be speaking for it all at any time during this conversation. But Shoshana Cox, would you like to introduce yourself? That's, uh, that's you, Ben. <laughs> Hi, I'm Shoshana Cox. Just so you know, you're the one that says the... Um, what if a woman has sex on a plane and then flies over the international dateline, the morning after pill becomes the morning before pill. So that's you, Ben. Justin, you're Sheena G, who's the one who says the Supreme Court are a bunch of Supreme shitheads. <laughs> Was she the liberal? The Doesn't last she... remaining Democrat or what? I think they're all liberal. <laughs> Doesn't she keep saying, like, am I right the whole time during am I that? Right? <laughs> So, so yes, okay, uh, there, is, there is so much to talk about in this episode, and I think where I want to start, of course, is where is Zach? And very, very thankfully, of course he's at the restaurant, but he's not doing something that has been established at the restaurant before, he is doing something there that relates to the movie we're discussing today. He is out spreading the word, the good word, that teen horniness is not a crime. Horniness is not a crime Open your heart and your mind Horniness is on the rise Look inside and you will find Horniness is not a crime Open your heart and your mind Cause the numbers don't lie Observe the nerds who shot a call them by So he's making sure everybody in the restaurant is aware of that fact With that out of the way I have one last bit before we talk about this actual movie but I think the only way to get there is to say that this is our final episode of the Rock Sets Shit Straight series. Ben, we did it. It was only three episodes, but we did it. Woo! <laughs> and, of course, as everybody knows, Ben is the creator of this series. Uh, Rob gave him control in that he got to talk about two movies out of the three. And then Rob said, we're going to do this series but we're going to talk about Southland Tales because The Rock is in it and I've always wanted to talk about this movie. Before we get into Southland Tales, I have to throw it back to the start of this series. Ben, do you remember when we first began in our Walking Tall discussion how we talked about The Rock's career and we talked about that every generation needs a muscle-bound person in their movies? Does this ring a bell yeah. to you? Yeah. So, of course, you know, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger passed the torch to The Rock. And now, kind of in, in 2020, the late 2010s, we've been looking for, well, who is going to take The Rock's place? Of course, The Rock's not going to disappear, but who is our next muscle-bound person? And I was the one in our Walking Tall episode that said, for some reason, the, the cultural media wants us to think the next big muscle-bound dude is going to be Dave Bautista. And I know, Ben, we had some uh, discrepancy on this. I think you mentioned Chris Hemsworth and that type of thing. But I, I wanted to bring this up because I actually read an article earlier today 
from CheatSheet.com, which is a, a showbiz website, which details an interview with Dave Bautista. And in this interview, he talks about being an actor, being a uh, kind of going from wrestling into the movie realm as this big muscle-bound person. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. This is exactly what Ben and I were talking about. He goes on to say some things that I think we will all appreciate. Uh, the three of us here, of course, Shoshana Cox and, uh, Dina, and Sheena G. But our audience will as well if they've listened to our Walking Tall discussion. There are two quotes I want to read from Dave Bautista. Here's the first one. Do not compare me to The Rock or John Cena. Everyone does it. Those guys are wrestlers who became movie stars. I'm something else. I was a wrestler. Now I'm an actor. So shots fired right off the bat that he, he, just as I said in the Walking Tall episode, Dave Bautista, he's not a movie star. He's an actor. And remember, Ben, how I talked about The Rock? That shit makes no sense. (laughs) Remember, Ben, how I said that there's a difference between screen presence and actor? Yeah. Okay, so Justin's weighed in. Uh, uh, Sheena has weighed in. (laughs) I I think I I have to dissent here because I think in Southland Tales, The Rock proves that he is an actor. Oh, yes. I Yeah, I agree. I will take that, Ben. Uh, we might be jumping the gun into this actual movie, but this is the first thing I've ever seen that makes me think The Rock actually is an actor. <laughs> so I'm with um, you there. <laughs> have you seen Skyscraper or Snitch? No, uh, not Snitch. I've seen some of Skyscraper, and I've seen San Andreas, the one where he flies the helicopter si- sideways into okay. the chasm. <laughs> so, like, I don't think that you can judge his ability to act based on movies like San Andreas or Rampage. Okay. But I think I think that if you look at like Snitch or Skyscraper, you might you might feel a little differently. Like in Skyscraper, he is not muscle bound man of the man of the world. He's like Gimpy used to do something muscly, now I'm a security guy. Yeah, and isn't he I, missing I a leg or something in Skyscraper? Uh, I don't think he's missing a leg. I think his leg is just injured. And okay, he, okay, gotcha. Yeah, walk around on it. So, so the second quote I want to read from Dave Bautista, because I think it relates to exactly what we're discussing. And we can do a little aside at the start of this. Um, I'm going to try and put off the absolute barrage of hate that I'm going to try and defend from the other two hosts on this episode for Southland Tales. But he goes on in the same interview. Dave Bautista says, The Rock was, in a way, a movie star before he was even a movie star. There is something about him that's really special. I'd never take that away from him. Would I consider him a great actor? Fuck no. End quote. <laughs> so, so Dave Bautista, because he's been in one fucking Denis Villeneuve movie for three minutes, Blade Runner 2049, he thinks he's hot shit these days. And I'm going to say it right now, Dave Bautista, hey, you were in two terrible movies that made you famous— Guardians of the Galaxy 1, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. You're the worst character in them, on par with every character in them. You in, you're in that stupid Amazon little kid spy movie. Don't tell me that you're a fine, refined actor these days. So, okay, I guess I'll throw Yo, it over Rob, then. You, better, I, I you think... better be careful. You better get your ass kicked. <laughs> if, if, my, if my job was actually like being an actor or I worked in the movie industry, I would then probably have to pull some punches. But I find it hard-pressed for a university or a school to ever be like, we don't want you to teach here. You said negative things about women in movies or <laughs> and men in movies. Everybody or or in Dave movies. Batista. So yeah. I, I actually – I think I want to just go out here and say that for one, 
Uh, I'm a little disappointed in myself for having missed that our muscle-bound man on the screen to replace The Rock is actually going to be Henry Cavill. Um, ah. he, okay. he doesn't only okay. have the muscle-bound, he has the nerd aspect more recently. He's, he's got the nerd aspect. He's, um, he's definitely got the muscle-bound. He's inspiring. He's uplifting. If you watch his workout videos leading up to The Witcher, he's very much like, you know, you can do this, but you should do it smart. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah, so I think if anybody's going to take over that role of just being muscle-bound but also really relatable in a way that doesn't make any sense, it's going to be Henry Cavill. And uh, I think in terms of Dave Bautista thinking he's an actor, coming up with that one line in Guardians of the Galaxy where he said something like, why is Gamora? Like, that doesn't make you an actor. Um, and Henry <laughs> more Cavill... More than three words. <laughs> I, think, I think that Henry Cavill and Chris Hemsworth both beat the shit out of him in terms of acting. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. even Chris Pratt does like he's, he's not even the best actor in those guardians movies, which as Rob has indicated <laughs> his level of hate for them. I don't hate them like he does. I actually kind of like them, but I don't think that he stands out in any way. Uh, I mean, other than his character was written funny. Yeah. He, he's the, he, he's the comic relief of those movies, even though, Every character is the comic relief except for the villain. Um, but yeah, that, that's a discussion for another time. The travesty that is the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise as well as the first musical number of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which um, should be classified as a war crime. But we're not talking about that today. I guess I want to throw it over to you, Justin, since this is your first appearance on the, uh, the series, which if you missed it, just let me reiterate, this series is called The Rock Set Shit Straight. And it's movies where The Rock sets shit straight. Do you have any overall thoughts on The Rock as a person, as an actor, or, or anything like that that you want to chime in with? Do you know who The Rock is? Dwayne Johnson? Oh, Dwayne Johnson's The Rock. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I always thought that Dwayne looked like The Rock. Is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I know that, uh, Justin, in all honesty, that we you are aware of The Rock because we have talked about the people's elbow before. <laughs> right? That's right. Shit. I grew up with The Rock. Did The Rock look a little small in this movie to you guys? Like, I feel like he's a lot more jacked now than when he was in this movie. Oh, de- definitely he's gotten bigger over time. Yeah, he's massive. He, he's... He's not any smaller in this movie than he was in Walking Tall or The Rundown, though. He's actually more cut in this movie than he is in, in Walking Tall. I don't remember. Yeah, I think we discussed, Ben, on our Rundown episode that um, he, he looked bigger, but we kind of concluded that it was a lot of camera magic and the angles they shot him from to make him more imposing than the rest of the people in that film. Even right. though the, the rest of the people in that film are Rosario Dawson, Christopher Walken, and Sean William Scott, who, who hold no <laughs> Very to imposing him. actors. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize you were such a uh, expert on the rock, Ben. What do you think about him in Ballers? Do you think that's a good show? You think he's good in it? I've never seen it. Uh, I've also never seen it. I'm <laughs> not an expert on the rock. I just was about 15 when these movies came out. <laughs> this is this is awesome that we've come full circle because when Ben and I started this series, I was like, "So Ben, you love the rock. You you live for the rock. You like his movies." And Ben was like, "No." <laughs> and now Justin Justin's saying the same thing. This is great. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just, in 2004, 2005, when these movies were coming out and, and catching some attention, with the exception of the one we're talking about today, because they didn't come out until 2006, I think, um, I was 15 years old. Yeah. I used to box in the front yard with my friends. Nice. We were adrenaline-addled 
white teenagers. So, you know, I, which means that I love Samoans and uh, also Samoas. And Ooh. so here we are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All I've got to say on the matter, I don't think these guys hold up to Schwarzenegger. Maybe it's just because, you know, Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I feel yeah, like it's really hard to hold a lighter up to them. I mean, I was probably young, so they just stick as like the classic muscle-bound action actors. And I think The Rock is pretty good. You know, I don't love him. I don't hate him. Same thing for the uh, the rest on the list. Um, but I don't know, man. I miss I miss Arnold. <laughs> uh, so I, for one, I have to address the fact that you said hold a lighter. I've only ever heard hold a candle. So that's hold a candle. That's fun. I've got a way of messing up expressions. That's I think that that's the new one now. We're past the age of candles. We have lighters. Um, you know, <laughs> I've heard hold a lantern as well. I think that's the oh, British okay. version of it, though. Oh, <laughs> that, that actually might just be how the British people say candles. Um, <clears throat> Fair. Actually, no. I think they call flashlights torches. So they got some weird shit going on. Oh yeah, I've heard that. But your statement about Jean Claude Van Damme wants me to remind you that the, uh, makes me want to remind you that the Street Fighter movie exists. Oh God, yes. <laughs> I mean, you should. But... Why? Why? What? What? What goes well, on? Well, Jean Claude Van Damme's in it, and Jean Claude Van Damme is it a great movie? If you like corny fucking movies, that is a very corny movie. I, I think he is he That's... M Bison. No, he is somebody who's not in the games. He is just a guy. God, I haven't seen that in so long. I I actually rewatched uh, Mortal Kombat within the last year, which that actually has so Christopher good. Lambert in it as Raiden, who's also in this movie, which is very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, the Mortal Kombat movie is epic. I think I got like two or three of those in in like the same case in the five dollar bin at Walmart. <laughs> <once>. <laughs> Which oh, okay. is a recurring thing now, apparently, that I talk yes. about the movies I bought in the $5 bin. Um, that's the only way I can afford movies, oh, cinema audience. <laughs> that means I need your money, is what I'm trying to tell you. I don't need your $5, but I mean, you kind of do. We kind of do need your $5. Yeah, I, I kind of need I think we're jumping the gun on that. Well, with that all that out of the way, I, I would like to uh, to jump over to not only saying, well, yes, this is a... A, a main part of the uh, the Rock Set Shit Straight series, but this is also a crossover with what we have also called a series which is totally disjointed, The Good, The Bad, and The Richard Kelly. Even though I think the Donnie Darko episode will not exist when this comes out, because that is a doozy to edit, and I take full blame for that. Okay, <laughs> Ben, yay, laugh at me, okay. <laughs> laugh at my alcoholism. Uh, but we are discussing a Richard Kelly film. Go for it, Ben. I hope, I hope you leave the joke when, when you first heard the word cinema audience. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's in there. That's in there. Yeah, I, that, that's the first usage. Yep, that, yep. Yes, yeah. The time vortex doesn't make that clear because that's not going to come out apparently for like another year. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the first. It's going to have the cabin in the woods treatment. Yes, uh, it's going to yes. be shelved for a while. Uh, so yes, this is uh, the second film from Richard Kelly. Also, the second film that the three of us are discussing from Richard Kelly. The first being Donnie Darko. But before we can get into Southland Tales and all that we have to say about it. I, I really wanted to throw it over to you, Ben, and ask you a question. As I already mentioned, since this is the Rock Set Shit Straight series, where you picked the first two movies, and I commented last week on the rundown about how you really found 
two movies where The Rock sets shit straight. I was I was like amazed by that fact that they were almost the same movie but different at the same time. After seeing Southland Tales, without getting into your thoughts, without getting into any nitty gritty, if you just want to make this a yes or no answer, in your opinion, in Southland Tales, does The Rock set shit straight? I'm not confident that The Rock's character needed to even exist in this movie. <laughs> that is a that is basically what I expected as an answer to that question. <laughs> uh, no, he does not set anything straight. I would say it's a hard no. I don't think a boxer Santeros slash Jericho Kane slash Dwayne Johnson slash The Rock sets anything straight in this movie. If anything, he lets things happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a very passive observer. <laughs> uh, but that being said, his acting is on point. He does some finger stuff. He has some quirks. Yes, he's got business. Yes. Yeah, he's <laughs> he actually is... You know, he's pulling out all the stops when it comes to, to playing Boxer Santeros. But Boxer Santeros is incredibly ineffectual. Well, we'll get to it, but I guess the fact that he exists is important for the movie. But his character could have been left out, I think. Mm, okay, okay. Like, okay. in terms of needing screen time. Okay, fair. Even though He, he had the most screen time. Yeah, I think he did. for all intents and purposes... He was, like, the he main our, character. That's what I was about to say. He is the main character. He, he is the main character for almost no discernible reason. <laughs> <laughs> but he's the rock, Ben. He's got muscles. <laughs> but there's no discernible reason for anything in this movie. So he well, fits okay. Justin, perfectly. Justin is jumping you, the gun. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're getting ahead of ourselves. I, well... Let's get there. Okay. He so, existed in as oh much as this movie needed to exist. That's... Okay, yes. Okay, I already mentioned that I'm going to be fighting an uphill battle with this discussion. So I have a specific <laughs> way I want to organize it. So just <laughs> – I will mute you, Justin. I can edit you I out of this conversation. I cannot hold back, Rob. <laughs> okay, this is, this is how I felt we should go about this because I have now talked to both of you off mic in separate occasions describing – my feelings towards Southland Tales, and they are not reciprocated in the slightest. So I figured that before we even do the background, because I have a whole lot of background I want to talk about with this movie, I decided that I would sit down and actually write a review for this movie. And I never do this. I don't usually sit down. We usually just let the discussion flow. But this is He's what I wanted to do. right now. I <laughs> you don't usually sit down. That's true. <laughs> I, I figured that I would read my review... And then I would throw it over to you two. You two can get all the negative thoughts you want out about this movie, and then we could do our background, let the discussion flow. So here we go. I'm going to read my review. It's not posted anywhere yet. I think I might share it on IMDb or something because that's Reddit. how much I care about this movie. I'll, yeah, I'll put it on the Cinematis Reddit. That's a good, good thought, Justin. But here we go. And, I, and remember, if any of you laugh or talk, I can edit it out. So I'm just going to keep going. This should be, I'm gonna this take sh- a nap. Just yell really loudly when you're done. <laughs> Wake okay. me up. This is Rob's review of Southland Tales. The the can cut, the original cut, not the theatrical. Overall, I love this movie non facetiously. I think this is an incredibly ambitious masterpiece of filmmaking, and it deserves an immense amount of respect. Any story that is this incredibly dense and nearly impenetrable gets my attention, and I love the fact that missing any piece of dialogue at all is a detriment to the viewer's understanding. The directing and the performances, with the exception of Mandy Moore, are unbelievably fantastic. 
the cinematography, with the entire movie being shot on 70mm or wide-angle lenses, provides us with an absolutely impeccable view and understanding of the world in which this film takes place. The score is ominous and haunting in the best possible way, forcing a feeling of melancholy in almost a contradictory sense to the elements we're seeing on the screen, but not to the themes of the movie. There is an incredible amount of care put into the mise-en-scene as well as the overall editing, with every object and shot having its place. This movie completely transcends the concept of did you like it or not, and enters a realm of the viewer giving themselves over to an experience in creativity, technicality, and control over the craft of the greatest art form we have as humans. You two, go. I, I actually, I'm, Justin, I'm sorry. I'm jumping in first. I actually have to say I disagree with very little of what you said. That being said, this movie's fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna literally just. I have to like mute myself in the recording. I just want you guys to go off of that. Okay. So, I, I you, wrote a review too, actually, right okay. after I watched this movie. But if you want to go, if you want to keep going for a sec. Okay, or yes. do you want me to throw that out and then we spitball? Let um, me know how you want to do this, Ben. I, so, I'll, I mean, I'll just say one more thing. I agree. Like, there's so many beautiful elements of this movie. The cinematography is beautiful. The way it shot's beautiful. The score is beautiful. The acting is all really good. And somehow, this movie still managed to be one of the most boring and difficult to follow things I've ever tried to watch. I put effort into understanding this movie and have discovered that I, I'm fairly certain it actually doesn't make sense. Justin, go ahead. Okay, this is great. This is actually great because I swear I wrote this immediately after watching the movie and I think it echoes a lot of what both of you said, largely exactly what Ben said. But here, here, let me just go here. Let me just go and then we'll talk. Okay, here's my description of this movie. An uninteresting dystopian comedy, comedy in quotes, an uninteresting dystopian comedy following lame characters that make sex jokes for edgy teenagers to fill the empty void generated by its lack of content. Two and a half hours of haha sex joke, haha political commentary, haha, look, we paid The Rock and Justin Timberlake to do this. Now, this is my summation. The most impressive aspect of the movie is it has all the makings of a great film a great cast detailed plot about the state of society and how humans could end the world well-developed sets and cinematography building up of suspense and climax a great soundtrack and score because apparently those are two different things it's got sci-fi concepts time travel a post-apocalyptic society commentary on hollywood yet it somehow managed to be so unbelievably terrible from start to finish. I disagree only about the lack of content. I think there's plenty of content here. It's just mind-numbing. It's just boring as all hell. But uh, you can't like you can dissect every couple minutes of this movie and and dig into it and find plenty of stuff. But I just don't. When it's all put together okay. as a viewing experience, it's just not – it just is not a pleasurable experience. I watched it – I will agree with that. I watched There's it content, two and a half it's times. Just bad content. And it was hard. It was hard to watch that that many – I like because I watched it once and I was like, I don't think I understood this. 
And then I watched it again, and, and I was like, I don't think that this makes sense. And then I read stuff about it, and I was like, even these people who are trying their damnedest to glue something together here are struggling. So, Rob, I know that you love this movie. Well, well I want to ask Justin, how many times did he see it? Was this just a once of the uh, of the can cut that I sent you? I, I only watched it once. Okay. I agree with Ben. I had such a hard time paying attention to this movie and actually watching it. And this discussion reminds me of a Buddhist quote, which is, if you do something and you find it boring, do it again. If you still find it boring, do it again. And repeat that until you find something interesting and valuable in what you're doing. Now, I think I'm already noticing that we all kind of have similar takeaways from this movie, yet Rob somehow enjoys the process where Ben and I feel like we're being tortured. <laughs> we all know Rob's a masochist, and it's becoming very clear. I, uh, I did ask the question of how many times you've seen it because Ben chimed in. I am not kidding you guys or the audience. I have seen the theatrical version now twice, and I have seen the can version five times. And this is in the span Jesus of about Christ. a week and a half. Like, literally, I have no clue where you guys are getting boring from this. Like, I would wake up and go, I need to watch this movie. Like, I am so enthralled by this. And it's, it's almost to an inexplicable extent. I tried to capture some of it in my review of why I think I love it so much. But, man, the, the two hours and... 30 minutes, because there are 8 minutes of credits in the version that we're discussing, the original version, the original cut, the, the version that played at the Cannes Film Festival. All two and a half hours, it goes by, like, five minutes for me. Like, I am so on board for this movie. It felt like I seven repeat, hours. you are a masochist. <laughs> I'm with Ben here. That was painful to sit through, and it felt like, <laughs> dude... I, I had to get up to pee at one point, and I was like, all right, Heather, I've got to get up to pee because it feels like they're starting to wrap up. And I was like, we've only got one hour left. And she's like, there's still an hour? I was like, I know. I hate my life too right now, but I have to do this. So so I guess just something else I, I wasn't sure if we were going to get to. Uh, honestly, I was racking my brain thinking about, like, you know, what are the best movies I've seen in the last ten years? This is easily in my top five. Like, this is up there. This is up there with Under the Silver Lake. This is up there with Revolver. This is up there with It's Such a Beautiful Day. Private Parts, the 1972 Paul Bartel film, not the Howard Stern movie. Like, this is something that I am going to think about for the rest of my life when it comes to film. You shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, is this... exactly the uphill battle I was referencing before we started um... this discussion. <laughs> Have you ever seen Manos, Hands of Fate? No, we've talked about that a little bit, but I've not seen that. Or Red Cuba? Red Cuba, maybe, or I've heard of it. I don't think I've seen it. Nothing comes to mind. This movie's in the same realm as those movies for me. Okay. In that watching it is an experience, but it's not a good one. That's that's fair. I mean, you know, I definitely see this film as something laying into my sensibilities or, or films and, and literature and art that I like. You know, something like a Finnegan's Wake or a Waiting for Godot. Like, things that are, I don't want to say intimidating, because I don't think that's the right word. I think challenging and nearly impenetrable. Those are I things agree. I really like. There's I nothing to penetrate. I know, I think that's, I, I agree with impenetrable, but I think it's impenetrable because it doesn't actually make sense. 
Well, that's not impenetrable. That's just a false sense of fucking there being something to glean from this film when there's nothing. Well, can impenetrable I say, is we like there's further, something I, inside. No, to I, get I, to. I need you to shut you down, there. Justin. There's this nothing is, in there. No, you are wrong. You are absolutely wrong because something that I did not force upon you guys is which I did. I read all three graphic novels that served as a prequel to this, which make it a full story. There is a story here. You cannot say that you don't – there's nothing here because you are missing half of it. And yes, don't come at me saying, well, oh, we're only discussing shit. half of it. No, it's not dumb shit. We're discussing the movie because this is a podcast about movies. You never would have read 160 pages of graphic novels and watched this movie. So I, I do have to, to interrupt and, and say that I kind of agree with you and I kind of don't. And the reason I kind of don't is because when it comes to the judgment of a movie – I like to judge movies as standalone things. Yes. So I don't like like when it comes to to people trying to tell me that Lord the Lord of the Rings movies are great, but you have to have read the book to to appreciate them. Well, then that's I'm sorry, that's not a great movie. Maybe it's I a great like tag along for the books, books, but it's not a great movie. If you know if if you have to qualify like you have to have read this other thing to appreciate the movie, then that is not a standalone good movie. I agree with you completely, Ben. You have to read the graphic novels to get a full understanding of the story. And that's why I'm not disagreeing with either of you guys saying you did not like this movie. It was boring. But I'm disagreeing with Justin saying that there is no story here. The story is fully fleshed out. It's not apparent in the movie. I'm totally agreeing with you there. That's a reason I like it. You guys don't. But you cannot say this is meaningless. This is not an example of Sprezzatura. And, and just defensive irony. This is a fully fleshed out story that he decided to deliver in two parts. So I got thrown into the final act of a play, not realizing there were acts before this. It, the the movie does tell you chapter come. four, five, and six. Yeah, that's your seeing. fault, Justin. It starts on chapter four, and I know I have told you that I will read the graphic novels leading up to this. So you cannot so, say that you were unaware of them, just that you yes, forgot them. Yes, but it's so hard to pay attention to something so boring. So, so I, I That's a personal fault, I think. I don't think that's a, an objective statement about this film. I, yes, I said earlier, you find it enjoying. I find it terribly boring. Well, no, it sounds like you're defending your idea that this movie is useless because you can't pay attention to it. Maybe I'm conflating the two because I've got very strong opinions. That's fair. That's as, as cinema audience pro- know, might know. Justin tends to do that, but that's fair. As long as you realize that there is a story here, and it is fleshed out, and I could spend an hour describing what the graphic novels fill in with the movie, but I don't think that's what our audience wants to hear. Yeah, I was unaware of that until we started talking about it. I actually think that the story that the movie tells is a whole story in some sense. I think like my problem with it is is that there are aspects of it that just don't make sense. And and specifically, um, why Roland and Ronald are both alive, provided that the uh, the way that the extra boxer died is the vehicle that he was in exploded, mm-hmm. which was also the vehicle that Roland or R- Roland is that his actual name? I don't remember. Yeah, the real name is Roland. Yeah, that's also the vehicle that he was in. So there's no reason he shouldn't be also dead. And there's also no reason that I can think of that there shouldn't be infinitely many copies of them. Now, that's an interesting idea. The, the, the why he's not in the car is explained in the graphic novels. Okay. 
the the infinite copy thing was something I was thinking about as well. Like, how do you put somebody in a temporal rift and not just have it repeat? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like, why didn't he? Why didn't the version of him that survived actually go through the rift? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then just make another copy. And and so that was that was my problem that I had with it is the time travel aspect there didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, f- I felt like the movie was kind of long winded also. Uh, I think that they could have cut out quite a bit of it and I would have been happy with it still. Okay. Um, I would have been happier with it. Uh, just so you know, the theatrical version is 14 minutes shorter, so it's still over two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I would have been happier this, if this movie had gone under an hour, or un, under, uh, not under an hour, under two hours. I agree, under an hour. <laughs> I, I think I think an hour fifty. They could the the actual out. Richard Kelly's first ever cut, which which this might you know lead into some of what I want to talk about on the background and Richard Kelly with this movie. But the first cut of this movie ever, not one that we get to see, but the one that he did in the editing bay first round draft was three and a half hours long. And I read that and I'm like, oh my god, I want to see it so bad. <laughs> I'm also the one, as the cinema audience knows from years ago, uh, the only version of Watchmen that I will watch is the ultimate cut, which is four and a half hours long. I will never watch any other version of that movie. So another another problem I have is I don't really like a protagonist that is almost irrelevant. Like he's relevant because people use him and use his his existence and his and his position, but other than that, he's not relevant. That's what I was about to say is that he is almost a tool of other characters. He, in, in and of he, himself, is a shell of a character. Yes. Yeah. And I, I didn't care much for that because I, I think if we were going to focus – like I would have much rather focused on Taverner more for more of the movie since Taverner actually kind of is a main point. But that's like – I guess this movie's kind of all over the place in the sense that there's no like one specific focus that you should care about, which yes. – is not a criticism necessarily because I'm sure that that's, that's a thing that that audiences might enjoy or some audiences might enjoy. But I think that the way that I approach movies is I I want to be told a compelling story. Sure. And I don't want to have to work that hard for it. And it's like, I mean, if you read the, the Aragon series books by Christopher Paolini, there's in the, in some of the later books, maybe the second book, they uh, they kind of hop back and around between characters, and the same thing goes on with Game of Thrones. And like that's why like Game of Thrones even has too much of a, of a meandering like wandery story for me to to really want to get into. Not to say that I don't like what I've seen, but that's just that I don't want to have to try to pay attention to it. So I don't okay. I don't pursue it unless somebody like is watching it with me and wants to wants to make me watch it essentially sure sure as some type of a, a guide you know yes yeah yeah yes. absolutely no i and i think that that's a very important point about this movie is that you know if i had to compare or maybe you know say what do i see as influences to this movie um that kind of uh, the way that this movie is structured is very much kind of you know loose vignettes throughout the entire thing so many characters and when certain arcs end Others begin, and we, we aren't really sure what how they connect ever, as we've been saying. But, you know, I see a, a huge inspiration um, on Richard Kelly in this film from both Pulp Fiction and Mulholland Drive. Um, Mulholland Drive, of course, is loose vignettes related, but we follow our main character. 
where Pulp Fiction is really just like, you know, nonlinear, we're following things and coincidences drive the story. And I kind of see this as Richard Kelly's attempt at that style of storytelling. Because, of course, uh, referring back to Donnie Darko, that is a character-driven piece. Like, Donnie Darko is the heart and soul of that movie. Where here, we don't really know who we're supposed to be rooting for and if the two sides at odds are even different from each other, if that makes sense. Well, and I I think it ends up being that they're not necessarily two sides. Um, but, like, so, like, one thing that, that also kind of drove me crazy is that, like, Bookman, when he, when he kills uh, Dream and Dion, like... I have yet to figure out what the hell their motivation is for turning that fake double murder into an actual double murder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That is not explained by the movie. Yeah. Unless they actually want Dream and Dion dead for some reason, which was, was never clarified. It doesn't appear to me that their actual death furthers their cause any. In fact, it appears that their actual death hurts their cause because then they take the tape that they were going to spread out into the world and hide it. And then later, whenever somebody else is going to spread it out for them, they try to stop that. So, like, uh, apparently their motive at the beginning was never to actually spread this tape out. Which, But the whole point of that was to apparently make Boxer Santeros look bad, which makes the Republicans look bad. But that doesn't make any sense either because Boxer Santeros is just there with a cop and the cop kills somebody in front of him. So that doesn't, that doesn't defame <laughs> Boxer Santeros in any way whatsoever. I guess that's what I'm getting at when I say the plot. You're making Rob's argument right now. In what way? That that this part of the plot makes no sense whatsoever? No, in that there's so much incredible detail that he finds intriguing. There is a a lot of detail, but the detail doesn't make sense. Can I actually weigh in on something here? So, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had, I, I'm sorry. I, of course, Justin. <laughs> you, so you, you know, Rob, you said um, – you said a minute ago, I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be rooting for here, things like that. Yeah. I think that's one of the key themes. And conceptually, there's a lot I find intriguing about this movie. Again, I, I had a really hard time sitting through it. I found it terribly boring. And I think a lot of people would share that sentiment. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of intriguing concepts to it. So I think the whole point is everyone in this movie is incredibly flawed. Because they are in this post-apocalyptic society, and as a result of that, as a result of like the world nearly coming to an end, that they're all just fucked up. And so we're watching just a bunch of fucked up people. Not fucked up people that despite being incredibly traumatized are somehow completely keeping it together like in a lot of movies, right? Like Harry Potter. Perfect example completely traumatized character and you can criticize his angst and this and that but he's like i'm gonna completely keep it together and save the world and solve the world's problems on myself and we see that a lot in media yeah that people about, go through this about t- harry harry yeah, yeah harry. he's incredibly well humored for how much he was abused as a child <laughs> except like not not even taking into account what happened to his parents when he was a baby right may, may, he may or may not have been impacted by it. and he's like 16 you know, 14, right? And and people are like, oh, he's so angsty. He complains. Why doesn't he just be like the great hero everyone needs him to be? Well, but have you thought about what he goes through? I'm sorry that's not enjoyable for you to read book six where he's just an <laughs> angsty teenager. But goddamn, could you think about what you would be like in that situation? You would be probably – most people would be helpless. They wouldn't be able to – you know, 
no to worry about anything, you know, and solve their own problems, never mind the world's problems. So in this movie, they don't hold back. They're like, these people are just like products of a fucked up world that happened because of this nuclear bombing. I, uh, I, I definitely think that is um, one of the uh, main themes that I got from this movie as well, is that it is, we can't. Uh, you know, we talk about the you know the movie starts with the nuclear bombing in Abilene, and then we talk about how there's like a World War Three, and that's where Pilot Abilene came from. And it, I think that this I, movie is. I getting... have to say, I hated that. I hated that his name was the same name as the place that got bombed. Pilot Abilene. <laughs> I I just I hated it because I was never sure if I was remembering it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I have to say, I think you are correct. I, I agree with you in the sense, Justin, that you know this movie is about. Facing, you can't win against the enemy unless you win against yourself. And I think that's the whole point of the last maybe 15 minutes of the movie when Roland Tavener shakes hand with himself and they have to deal with the fact that something I got from the movie after multiple viewings and is also made clear in the graphic novels, Roland Tavener is the one that hurt Pilot Abilene in World War III. That's why he's saying friendly fire, friendly fire. It wasn't our fault. And yeah. oh, okay. the last scene in the movie is a character literally meeting themselves having to deal and get past a trauma that they've done to others because you can't oh, cool. win against the enemy before you win against yourself. And I think that's a huge theme of this movie. Everyone's flawed, and you need to deal with that within before you deal with it outwardly. It's good shit. That wasn't our fault. It wasn't our fault. Friendly fire, I forgive you. Friendly fire, I forgive you. Friendly fire, friendly fire, I forgive you. Friendly fire, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And God wiped away the tears from his eyes so the new Messiah could see out to the new Jerusalem. His name was Officer Roland Taverner of Hermosa Beach, California. My best friend. He is a pimp, and pimps don't commit suicide. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I actually, I, I was aware, uh, I think from, I read some stuff online. I couldn't watch it multiple times, so I did go out and read some additional shit about <laughs> okay, it. Okay, good. That's the next best thing, yes. <laughs> uh, and and um, they they did mention that, that he was the, like he threw the grenade or whatever that hurt Pilot Abilene. Yep. And that had something to do with some kind of, some some kind of like secret experiment thing that was going on. Yes. I'm not exactly sure why. Yeah, it, it is not explained in the movie, but the, the – well, it is very quickly explained at the beginning that the drug that they're injecting into their necks is, mm-hmm. is straight fluid karma, which is the thing that is being used as the energy source by the Trier Corporation. And the Trier Corporation in World War III, they were creating special units of soldiers where they would inject them with fluid karma because it was giving soldiers like telepathic abilities so they would be able to communicate telepathically without – saying their orders out loud and this went horribly wrong and it just basically like spiked their adrenaline 
and Roland Tavener was just on the warpath and shooting people, and when he threw a grenade towards the enemy, he didn't realize Pilot Abilene was there, and so it was friendly fire, that type of thing. But okay. that's, that was the experiment, was using fluid karma as a war device. So was the, was the Baron... I don't know. Maybe I misunderstood this part, um, but when they're first talking about the energy field that the Baron and like quantum entanglements, how they pass the energy along or whatever, yeah. like they're talking about harnessing the energy of the waves. But then later it becomes clear that they're actually removing some kind of substance from underneath the, the crust, the core of the Earth. Yeah, not the core, yes. the crust. So were they were they being dishonest about harnessing the energy of the waves? Wasn't harnessing the energy of the waves supposedly what slowed down the planet? Was it actually harnessing? Was it actually um, harvesting the fluid karma that slowed down the planet? That that is a that is an exact question I had after seeing this movie a few times before I read the graphic novels. The graphic novels do explain that in the sense that the Trier Corporation, headed by uh, Baron von Westphalen, they dig into the Earth's core and they find this kind of layer of a different type of fluid that works in the same way that Waves does in that perpetual motion machine, as they describe it, and they name it Fluid Karma. And their company starts to remove that from the Earth, and it turns out when that comes into contact with oxygen, it turns into energy. Like, that's that's how Fluid Karma is producing energy. But as the Trier Corporation sets up these big drilling rigs and takes more and more Fluid Karma away from the Earth's core and it's actually surrounding the Earth's core in, like, a very serpentine pattern, hence the name Serpentine Dream Theory as the name of the project, they are reducing the rotation of the Earth. Okay. Um, but that certainly doesn't vibe with what he tells the public about how he's producing energy. Oh, no, because I think he is a, a through-and-through liar to okay. the public and to his constituents. The great scene at the beginning when he cuts off the dude's hand instead of the finger... Right. Like oh, that is, was good. It is all just him. The like, six-inch yeah. Mario in the mirror. Oh, my God. I mean, we'll... Cutting rapists. There's so many... We have to get into the performances of this film. Not only is this star-studded, but Baron Von Westphalen is Wallace Shawn, who I've loved for years, who everybody knows as the guy who says, Inconceivable! From The Princess Bride. <sighs> and he is so good in this movie. But... But I think before we get to performances, all these details, if there's other top-line items, we should bring it up, but there's some background I'd like to talk about as well. So, so Justin or Ben, were there any kind of big thoughts you had about this movie? And I think now that I say this, there's one that I wanted to uh, discuss about your review of this film, Justin. But before I do that, any others that you guys had? Um, I mean, aside from the fact that the characters' motivations were unclear to me, sure. which I've, I've mentioned a couple different instances, I think, of that, uh, and then the ir- almost irrelevant protagonist. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's the uh, the bulk of what I have. He's to an say. object, not a character, man. <laughs> well, he, he yes, is but the Rock, which is an object. <laughs> but but this is also like his greatest acting performance probably ever. Yeah, yeah. And so for him to be an object in this movie just feels ridiculous. But sure, anyway, that's fair. That's yeah. a good point. What about you, Justin? Any other top line items? Yeah, I gotta say I'm impressed, Ben. That that you managed to go into such depth with this film. <laughs> I think if I really tried, I I could also form similar critical arguments, but I, I did not have it in me to just go that deep with this thing. So it was respect. not easy. I, and I did have to read some other people's work because I, I just yeah. couldn't watch it enough times. And then some of the stuff I read did reference the graphic novel and indicate. Yep. So 
there are things that I know that Rob mentioned only came from the graphic novel that I actually already knew from that other research. So, yeah. like, I'm not sure if I figured it. No, I, I definitely read the whole thing about Roland being the one who hurt Pilot Abilene and shit. So. Sure, yeah. Um, there, like I said, th- there's a lot here. I'm just not sure that it connects well or makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you there, and I, I'm actually kind of shocked. When I said this was going to be an uphill battle for me, I thought it was going to be literally you two going... Rob, why the hell did you waste my time? But it's actually been like, wow, this movie is very well composed. I just didn't like it. And that's that's a really good thing as far as I'm concerned. Like, you can not like a movie. I thought you guys were going to be like, this is garbage filmmaking. And I'm like, oh, my God, no. Like, this is a masterpiece of, of cinematography. But No, and I, like I said, there's a lot I agree with about your review. I just also didn't like it. <laughs> that's, and that's fair. I yeah. mean, Ben and I have had that on uh, The Neon Demon. So, you know. <laughs> So, no, I totally feel like my time was wasted. It reminds me a lot of our Chernobyl discussion where I'm like, you oh, may God. not have liked this, Rob. I'm not telling you you have to like something for it to be good and for there to be value. I can see the value in this despite the fact that I think most people would feel like they lost their life, a, a valuable time and a life energy sitting through this you know that's a that's actually a good point justin when you brought up chernobyl i think i'm conditioned myself to go oh my god are we talking about this again but that's actually a really good point chernobyl for justin and i is the exact flip of how we're feeling yes. about southland tales where i said the first 20 minutes of chernobyl and the last 30 minutes are fantastic everything else is boring and a waste of my time right and okay and, no, and good my point. argument has always been it's not about your time for this to have intrinsic value. And we actually get into this argument a lot, which is why I need to bring this up because there's so much shit that you just don't like, which is cool. But I'm like, it's got intrinsic value, Rob. And you're just like, this should never exist. So get wrecked. Well, I don't know if I, I think you're embellishing when I say it shouldn't exist. Shouldn't With video exist games. In my sp- well, vi- video games, we're not talking about video games right now. Video games are a cancer on the human race. <laughs> I'm talking about general opinions on things but okay that's okay fair. no that's but fair. no I, i'm actually really glad i would not i don't think i would have thought about that chernobyl discussion uh relation but that's a really good point for sure uh so justin has earned his keep this week ben on cinemodities <laughs> <laughs> so the, the i think the yeah, last he'll, he'll get uh he'll get what two five percent of the profits hey, no a hey like penny hey penny hey i'll take it so i think the last thing before we get into our uh, or i get into the background because i think there's a really fruitful discussion about the background and all the different like directions we can discuss the creation of this movie and the reception of this movie i do have to say to you justin in your review you described the the sex and the raunchy jokes as just for the sake of being there is that correct here, I'll give you my exact wording. Yeah, I yeah, thought they please. were like way too much and like pretty cringe. And I was like, oh, God, another sex joke. Well, I, I, I think that's where I want to push back because I think that's the point of this movie. I mean, I think this movie is reflecting on society that occurred right after 9-11. If you remember, right after 9-11 in the years that followed, you know, between 2001 and 2006 – when this aired at Cannes, and when 2007, when this actually went to theaters, this was the birth of trash culture. We had major news networks figuring out how much time should we put to George Bush's decisions about the war versus Kim Kardashian's sex tape. We lived this as a culture. 
this this movie encapsulates that time period where we had porn stars and politicians at the same level as far as the media was concerned. So I don't think these sex jokes are there to be raunchy or edgy or to get a laugh. I think they are a satirization of what we went through during the war in Iraq. Oh, uh, well, now I'm just depressed, Rob. I, I this is know. a very depressing movie. Don't get me wrong, but go ahead, Ben. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure that I made the connection to after the the war in Iraq. I, I was fairly young uh, around 9-11, and I don't necessarily remember the, the Kardashian-Bill Gates you know, t- uh, time um, competition, but I, I definitely got the vibe that... So, okay, so I guess I should go here instead. What what this reminded me of is actually like in Instagram influencers today. Okay, um, where there's like regular people who maybe are pretty dumb, having an inflated sense of of importance mm, in society, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of compounded on by the fact that like we at some point we see tanks that have like hustler on them. So like hustler is hustler and Johnsonville, the the sausage company. Yeah, right. Yeah, so like. <laughs> We got porn mags funding wars. Um, I, I got. I, I, I guess the sense I got was just like a degradation of society, not like necessarily a direct commentary on on what we went through. But it does seem kind of relevant today. And there's also some some of the th- um, some of the stuff around neo Marxism that that kind of hit, hit me a little bit uh, because of its of its relevance today. Yeah, I, I'm glad you bring that up because that was another thing that I was thinking watching this where I, I remember, I mean, you know, as you brought it up, Ben, um, with your history, maybe Justin and I, uh, we were physically and maybe a little mentally closer to the concept of 9-11. I mean, Justin, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe we were both in New York when 9-11 occurred. So it was yeah, a very definitely. big deal in to school. us. And, and seeing how that changed life and then also seeing the rise of, like I called it before, trash culture in that same time frame was very very close and personal to our upbringing and that's just what i saw this movie as when you have you know krista now she's the porn star and she's like i want to do jewelry and a talk show and an energy drink and i'm like i'm like yeah this is the kardashians like this is what we had back in the late 2000s and now what we're still getting today i i want to tie it back into what you said ben this movie is almost prophetic in some sense of they not only the trash culture that i'm describing but the extremism in politics that yes. you have those who say no we should be able to do whatever the hell we want with our bodies and the other side saying you need a thumbprint to log on to the internet yeah 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 so i i agree with you about about the prophetic nature of the way that he portrays society that's one of the many things that i thought this movie did very well I'm reminded of of a quote I actually heard earlier today. I, I heard it uh, coming out of Michael Malice on the Joe Rogan podcast, but I'm I'm I think he said that he heard it somewhere else that um, a conservative is a liberal who's gotten bullied, and a liberal is a conservative who's been arrested. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> and I I think we see some. Um, I think we see a little bit of a parallel that of that like kind of in Boxer Santeros, not that he necessarily experienced those direct scenarios, but that he um, he was a- apparently at some point very Republican, and then he lost his memory, and he became this this like cog in the liberal machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, well, li- liberal, I think, belongs in air quotes there also, because I these, these people, uh, the neo-Marxists, are, are terrorists. Like, no doubt, 100%, they are terrorists. 
cutting off thumbs for votes. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, they're trying to rig the election, and um, and that that feels reminiscent of the day all, with all the talk of of the 2020 election being rigged. Yep. So and I don't know. I yeah. People said 2016 was rigged too. Oh yeah, with the Russia oh, intervention, all that stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, they're they're talking now about how like directly the parties are going to be rigging it, not just outside influence. Sure. Like there sure. there was there was some some hints. Well, they that, said that about 2016 too, though. Well, I mean, I think they say that about every election. But I think Ben, what you're getting at is the uh, the mail-in voter stuff and the yes, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. That, with, so, that and, with the thumbs makes a is a huge analogy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so I mean I I don't know it's just the, the the parallels today are are almost like are pretty stunning especially like we see the the far leftists of today are the people rioting in the streets not to say that all of them are but but the people who are rioting are far leftists uh, or at least claim to be and and to see neo marxist terrorists I guess fighting to gain control back of of the country after uh, a major disaster, or not a, not a disaster, but a major um, catastrophic event caused people to want to vote for security, which voted in the Republican Party and got U.S. ident up and running. And and I guess the only missing part of the parallel is that we didn't have such a similar catastrophe yeah. um, that led to the voting in of Donald Trump. Uh, I think I I have some personal things that I blame for that, but I but I don't know that we had like a, a catastrophe. Uh, but now we we find ourselves in this situation where where one side of our political spectrum has become okay with being terrorists for the sake of trying to put their party back in power, and that's uh, I don't really use the word the term terrorist lightly. That, but the people who are rioting and burning down cities, specifically people who have who have uh, set cop precincts or police precincts on fire and and locked the doors to try to murder all of the people inside because like make no fucking mistake that is attempted murder on the like in the most real way. Uh, there's even a criminal minds episode about people locking door locking doors and burning down buildings and that's the way they do serial killing for that episode, you know. So like it's just it's just kind of astounding to see this movie from 2006 that predicted it. It it didn't predict it intensely enough though. Like the, the riots don't start until the end of the movie. Uh, whereas the riots have been going on for 100 days. I'm glad you say that because there is a quote I read from Richard Kelly, which was like maybe seven, eight years after this movie came out, where he says, you know, uh, I think it might have been a little further. I think like before Donald Trump got elected, he said someone interviewed him and he they asked him about Southland Tales and he said something along the lines of Southland Tales is too tame for today's political climate. <laughs> <laughs> That, and I, I was agree. like, "That's uh, that's that's." I kind of agree with that. You're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree, especially today, uh, the polarization, and you know, to to the to the audience, if you're liberal or or conservative or whatever, I'm not I'm not telling you that I disagree with you or that I hate you, uh, but I think there are a lot of people that are saying exactly that, and I think mm -hmm. that 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 is one of the one of the things that I see as like the number one fault of our situation right now is people being unwilling to attempt to look through each other's eyes. Fair. I guess Fair. I guess I'll get off my soapbox now and let you guys talk for a minute. <laughs> Justin, any uh, comments on the uh, that meth? My uh, comment on yours saying that the sexuality and the, and the raunchy jokes are a representation of what trash culture has become in U.S. today. Yeah, I have a comment about your comment about my comment about the movie. Yo, dog! I heard you like comments, so I put a comment in your comment <laughs> about your comment. <laughs> I did. I did not put the connection together, okay. and. Initially, and I hate that aspect of our society 
to be honest, the, the, the trashy side and that um, we have a really hard time getting down to facts and we're just so friggin' absorbed with celebrity culture sure. instead of actual facts. I mean, I'm not going to get into specific examples. I don't want to go deep into the, the political hole here. But yeah, I hate that aspect of our culture in a lot of ways. And I wish we'd just get down to like real facts and real problems and put our heads together in like a a fucking reasonable way. And I think I also hated seeing that in this movie. And that's probably why I didn't like it in the movie either. But the fact that it actually does connect back to our world makes me depressed. That's all I got to say. I I will say that sometimes it can be difficult to distinguish between satire and endorsement. Yes. And uh, and because of the extremes of today, this feel could feel like endorsement. Whereas perhaps back in 2006, it felt more like satire. Well, it just felt like raunchy jokes for the sake of raunchy jokes. Well, and what, what I'm getting at is that you're right. is that the culture that we exist in right now makes it easy to believe that that's what this was. Yeah. Whereas the culture that existed in 2006 might have had a different impact on you. You know, if you had seen it, then it might have felt more out of place and therefore more like a, a satire. Yeah, and that's always a tough thing, you know. Uh, we're, of course, looking at this, um, oh, Jesus, I think, what, we're like an hour into this discussion. I didn't even mention none of us had seen this movie prior to this recording. Like, this wasn't something Rob has loved for years. Like, this was cold for all of us. So all of these thoughts are coming off fresh. And we are truly giving it the 2020 outlook to a 2006-2007 movie. 2006 with the version we watched. And that's why I think that what we're saying gains a little more credibility, if anything. Sure. Like, I'm not saying, like, wow, I saw this in 2008 and I've had 12 years to stew on it. Like, I I might have seen this more than you guys, but we are all coming off of, like, a week, within a week of seeing it, basically. Yeah, I'm 48 hours off. (laughs) So I, I actually I wanted to tie that back into something that's going on now, and since this episode is going to release fairly soon, I mean Time Vortex, uh, not with. Well, this is the next episode to release. I got to edit this in like four days. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Uh, so the whole um, you know satire versus endorsement, uh, or or commentary on ex- on on um, a problem versus actually just being an example of the problem. I mean that 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 shit cuties from Netflix really. It's right. There. I was, I was thinking about that, Ben. I'm, like with the whole teenage horniness is not a crime. That <laughs> watching them talk about teenage horniness in the same week that this whole cuties blowouts happening, I I couldn't help but relate the two about like we should just stop talking about minors and sex in <laughs> in Hollywood. I'm glad you added that in Hollywood aspect. Yes, I just totally agree with you. Yeah. It. We should we should not teach abstinence, which I'm I'm a very much against. But we should not be yeah. putting this in the media culture. I'm with you there. I actually I was banging to... when I was a teenager. I'm not sure. saying. I've I've said it's to you before, hard. Justin, that the only thing I could do when I hit puberty was think about how much I wanted to have sex. Like that's why <laughs> that's why my oh, high yeah. school years I I failed and missed a lot of classes because I could only think about sex. <laughs> you and ninety percent of the world. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually was was going to to pitch at some point that we talk about that movie, but then I I figured I didn't want to have to bleach my eyes out. <laughs> Yeah, Ben, I've had enough oh, of I, I don't want to watch that with Law and Order Special Victims Unit, so I think I'm good. 
<laughs> yeah, I, so I just I think that the cinema audience needs to be aware. Don't request it. It's not happening. Oh God, yeah, that's that'd be rough. I mean, I'm not watching child porn. Yeah, that that's something we have to talk about, Ben, as we go forward. Uh, it's it's come up months ago, but like Zach and I really wanted to discuss the uh, surviving R. Kelly documentary, and then we watched it, and we were like, no, 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 we're gonna get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, cuties falls in that same vein. Absolutely. Uh, there are there are a few good reviews of people who have seen the movie on YouTube. Uh, shoe on head for for those for those of you that are interested in knowing more about the movie from the perspective of someone who actually watched it. <laughs> shoe on head did watch it and does talk about it, and it is. I mean, from I I had to stop. Actually, you know, she she censored out a lot of the stuff. There was another guy who who put some clips of the scenes, and I I had to turn it off because I couldn't, I just couldn't take it. Okay, I couldn't, like I couldn't stand watching eleven year olds dance in a manner that's very sexual, and then also having the camera pointed directly at their pelvises. Ugh. I just I couldn't handle it. Ugh. So I had I had to stop watching that video. I, but I he have, does talk about how bad it is. I have to ask, you mentioned shoe on head. Yes. Is shoe on you? Is it a she? Yes, Shuan Head is a lady. Is Shuan Head the YouTuber, the actual girl that did the Shuan Head thing from back in the mid-2000s? Are you aware of Shuan Head? I'm not familiar. So I think when, when the, the website Live Jasmine started, which is basically like the first version of cam girls, like you pay women to see them get naked, there was a very famous, like an early meme where somebody was in a chat room of like one of the most popular girls... And she was like, you know, you give me a donation, and in the next 10 minutes, the highest donation, your request, I'll do that. And someone donated, like, $2,000 and said, put your shoe on your head. <laughs> and she did it, and it became, like, one of the first memes, and it was it was shoe on head. I, I'm very interested. I need to know, is shoe on head the YouTuber, the girl from 2003 that put a shoe on her head? <laughs> uh, you know, to be completely honest, I, if that is a... Um, that sounded like a porn thing. I don't suspect that it's her. Because oh, I don't it was think she's 100% old. a porn thing, yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she's old enough to have been doing porn back then. Okay, okay. So she's just referencing she, shoe on head because it's perhaps. like a meme now. It's like that's she an ancient inspiration. meme. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so she, I, I didn't actually know the, the origin story. I figured it was some dumb inside joke. That was like hot talk in my middle school when I was in like 7th, 8th grade. Like the girl that put a shoe on her head for, for money on a porn <laughs> website. <laughs> Right all right, so I want another. I got another thing to add here. Oh yeah, um, yeah. About my general thoughts about the movie, this reminded me a lot about a lot of Donnie Darko. Actually, I thought there were a lot of themes and elements to this movie that were reminiscent to Donnie oh. Darko. I wonder why. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, they're both Richard Kelly. Um, but I just wanted to point out. You know, end of the world themes, big yep. time end of the world themes. You know, we've got some time travel, parallel universe concepts, things like that. There were definitely some similarities in pacing, also. Oh yeah, like sure. This, the speed of this movie felt very, sim- very much like the speed of Donnie Darko. Yeah, I, I definitely kind of the first time I watched this movie, like going in completely cold, I was like, oh yeah, I get it. This is this is this is what Donnie Darko would have been if Richard Kelly had more money. And yeah, and he wanted to make it incredibly dense. Yep, exactly. Because I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I haven't finished editing our Donnie Darko discussion. I don't know if we get to it, but the whole director's cut of Donnie Darko is like an extra forty-five minutes of stuff. 
that oh, directly shit. relate to the manipulated living and the book that Grandma Death wrote and things like that. So Richard Kelly has always wanted to just be like, let's bog down the audience in lore and hope they get it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Our like half of our Donnie Darko discussion revolved around me being like, Ben, all this stuff makes sense if you just read like fifty pages on the internet about <laughs> like the all the laws about the magic behind this universe. That is that is true. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're doing the same thing. The best part of my uh, addition to the Donnie Darko. Uh, discussion is the beginning when I go, hey, isn't the score and the soundtrack to this movie amazing? <laughs> Let's talk about Tears for Fears for half an hour. <laughs> and the score and soundtrack were great in this, too. Oh, that absolutely. was one of the things yeah. I actually enjoyed. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller actually recorded a full three-minute track of Teen Horniness is Not a Crime, and I have put it on my phone so I can play it for people. <laughs> <laughs> Open your hearts and your mind. Yes. Is what it is? So we, yeah, we will have to talk about. I think this is. We've gotten our major thoughts out of the way. We have some. some yes. The audience, the cinema audience, I should say, has a, a great yeah. understanding of where each of us are coming from with this movie, and uh, how we're willing to discuss it as well. So that's good. I think the next thing that I think is uh, the most pertinent for us to discuss is the background on Southland Tales. And as everybody listening to this, our cinema audience. They know that we've kind of done this in reverse because Rob usually likes to start with the background. But I felt that we needed to get our big thoughts out of the way so everybody knew where we were coming from. And, oh, man, there's a lot right here. But let me start by saying this movie made its debut in 2006 at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, Richard Kelly got a personal invite to, to play this new movie at Cannes. And not only did he was he invited to play it, but he was actually allowed into the contenders for the Palme d'Or. And the Palme d'Or is like the best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Just to put this in perspective, some of the winners that I really appreciate from Cannes and Palme d'Or, uh, Taxi Driver, the Martin Scorsese film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Steven Soderbergh film, Wild at Heart, the David Lynch film, with Nicolas Cage, which I know Ben and I have seen. I love that movie because Laura Dern tells, well, Nicolas Cage is smoking a cigarette. Laura Dern says, I'm pregnant. He lights another cigarette and puts it in his mouth. So he's smoking two cigarettes. That's a great film. Uh, Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or back in 1994. And most recently, the last iteration of the Cannes Film Festival, Parasite won the Palme d'Or. So this is a big deal. Not only if you win, but of course, if you're in contention. And this movie actually was, if you can believe it or not, the version we watched and that we're discussing today. When this played at the festival, I am not kidding you, it was booed, outright booed. And there's actually a quote from Roger Ebert, who was at that viewing, and he said, I was dazed, confused, bewildered, bored, affronted, and deafened by the boos all around me. This is a really rare occurrence. The Cannes Film Festival has existed for a long, long time, but for a film to get outright booed, that's how you know Rob's going to love it. <laughs> but jokes aside, I did want to mention a quick bit about the same Cannes Film Festival in 2006 where this played. This was actually where The Da Vinci Code premiered, the Ron Howard ad adaptation of The Da Vinci Code book. Have either of you guys seen The Da Vinci Code movie? 
No, I always plan to read the book and then watch the movie, and I never got around to the book. Okay, I, I actually read the book and then saw the movie. I read the book before the movie came out, then saw the movie. At the premiere at this Cannes Film Festival, people laughed at it for the entire two hours. And that is the correct response. This movie is so stupid. <laughs> so I just had to get that in there. That I, Zach and I have a big history with The Da Vinci Code. We do this thing where every time we go to theaters and the lights start to dim, we go, wait, this isn't The Da Vinci Code. And I know I've never done it with you, Justin. I did a lot when Zach – we did a lot when Zach and I went to theaters. But that movie deserves all the laughter that it gets because it is horrendous. So – that's the first step in the history of Southland Tales is that it played at the probably the biggest film festival in the world and got outright booze like nobody liked this movie. And just, you know, for completionism, it did not win the Palme d'Or, of course. It lost to The Wind That Shakes the Barley. I have no idea what that movie is, and I did not look into it. So maybe we'll check that out one day. But we come... To the next time it played. So remember, when the three of us discussed Under the Silver Lake way back when, we talked about how that played at a film festival and it got a negative reception. So the studio said, how do we edit this to release it to theaters so it'll be more profitable? So it will relate to audiences better. That was the same deal with Southland Tales. The 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 distributor, Sony Pictures, they said, well, wow, this got negative reviews. What do we do to make this movie work when we actually want to sell it to general audiences? And that is how the theatrical cut came around, which is, like I said earlier, 14 minutes shorter. It cuts out certain parts. It adds a lot more narration. It tries to explain things better. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, compared to the original version, it is not as good. I think it, it holds the hand of the viewer too much. That's a different discussion for the three of us for another time because clearly Justin wanted his hand held the whole way through. But the next time this movie played, before its theatrical release, was at Fantastic Fest. Zach and I have talked about Fantastic Fest before, and I do have to say that then with, when this movie, the theatrical version, played at Fantastic Fest in 2007, early 2007, the reviews were mixed Rather than completely negative, so it did a little better, but Fantastic Fest is a different audience. And then, in April of 2007, this movie drops. Okay, so so guys, just so you know, I mean, you know, it's no big deal. This movie costs $17 million. It's, you know, it's not too big for a, for a theatrical release, for a Hollywood release, especially with Richard Kelly coming off of the success of Donnie Darko, which I think was $4 million. He got some more money to, to do this film, um, but it, then it made a great... $350,000. This might be the biggest loss of money in Cinemodities history. <laughs> I wonder why. Well, I'm glad you say that, Justin, because it actually, if you do your research, it's not only because this did not connect with mainstream audiences. I'm not saying it did. It did not. This movie was not an audience-going, word-of-mouth type of thing. But you have to take into account that when this movie was coming to theaters, when it was in its promotional phases and released, the Writers Guild of America strike occurred. And you might say, well, what the hell does that have to do with promotion for a movie? Every single late night talk show that actors go on and promote movies did not exist for almost eight months. That is a huge reason 
that this movie did not make a lot of money. You you can talk about, like, The Rock was scheduled for Letterman, Sarah Michelle Gellar was scheduled for Leno, XYZ actor, all of the A-list actors they had in this film were ready to go on circuit and promote this film, and they all got canceled in a week. I don't know if you guys remember how big of a deal the Writers Guild of America Strike was, but, like, that's why certain shows got canceled. That's why certain shows that usually got 23 episodes a season had eight episodes that season. Like, this was a huge impact on TV. And, well, yes, Justin, this movie was not made for commonplace audience goers, but you have to take into account that this movie literally had no promotion behind it. And that's a huge deal when it comes to making money. Thoughts on that? I don't know if you guys remember the writer's strike. Did that, uh, does that have any, any thoughts on that? Didn't it impact 30 Rock? Yeah, 30 Rock was delayed. 30 Rock was one of the ones they chose not to do a season. They delayed a season by like a year and a half because of the writer's strike. Right, yeah. Yeah, I remember. That, that's why uh, every season of Lost has 23 episodes except season four, which has 16. Because of the writer's strike, they had to just end. They had to stop. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I remember. I just remember it being a big deal. I remember like a lot of people talked about it. It was like this huge thing. Like TV was never coming back. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that was one of the the times in my life of of film understanding of TV and film criticism that I realized how important writers really are. You know, I think yeah. that it's a big misconception. Like late night talk shows, because that's part of this discussion. Like when you had Letterman. You know, Letterman just doesn't get up there every night and do his shtick. They spend the week, the day, writing his shtick. Letterman is a fucking puppet for the writers. And when the writers wouldn't write, Letterman had nothing to do. Yeah. Jeopardy got canceled, even, because no one was writing questions for Jeopardy. Damn. I think there were, uh, that was like the, was it, what time of the year was that? That was like, I don't know, I'm having trouble remembering, but I should remember. I think it was like summer to fall. It's like summer typically has a lot of reruns, and the reruns just like kept going. Yes, the reruns just gone, went and went and went, and yeah. that was the point in time where it hasn't happened since the writers' strike, and now it's happening again in COVID. That Jeopardy was like, let's play thirty-year-old tournament of champions videos, right. and and they're doing it again now in COVID because they can't film Jeopardy, and. They couldn't do it during the writer's strike either because no one was writing questions. You think fucking Alex Trebek writes questions? He just gets fucking comment cards with the questions on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Justin, do you remember the writer's strike? Um, Vaguely, you know, props to the writers for striking. Stick it to the man. You know, I'm all about it. Not <laughs> only did they probably end up getting more money out of it, but they saved so many people from having to see this movie. So respect. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. I see, I see where, you're com- where you're coming from, Justin. That's pretty funny. So, so yes, uh, we, we cannot mention that this movie made 350k against 17 mil without mentioning the writer's strike. That's a big deal of it. Uh, but still, probably one of the, the worst performing Cinemodities movies ever. Transition. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I, I think that uh, the, the next thing I want to mention is that, you know, not only about this, the movie's creation, but more in the background of who Richard Kelly was and how he was able to get this movie made. Richard Kelly, of course, was coming hot off Donnie Darko. And I think that everybody needs to remember 
that Donnie Darko wasn't a hit out of the gate. Like, it did take some time for that to become the classic that it is. And so when that started to really gain traction, it was maybe a year or two after its release. And Richard Kelly was trying to figure out, well, where would he go next? As any good director should, they say, well, yeah, I did my my freshman effort. I put forth my writing, my directing. And now that it's got me some attention, how do I use that? And I think everybody needs to remember, or know if they aren't aware, Richard Kelly was offered the directorial job of X-Men 3, The Last Stand, because of Donnie Darko. Oh, that one was good. And he turned it down to make this movie. And Justin, I could not disagree with you more. X-Men 3 is probably the worst X-Men film in existence. Like, I would take the unedited version of Wolverine Origins over X-Men 3. <laughs> I like all the X-Men shit, man. That X-Men's is the worst thing you've fun. ever said on this podcast. <laughs> I also like most of the X-Men stuff. That is the uh, worst thing both of you have ever said on this podcast. I don't know how much I remember the, the third one other than uh, the Juggernaut. I was just I'm about to say, juggernaut. that is the, the only juggernaut, thing bitch. anybody remembers about the third one. I'm the Juggernaut, bitch. Liv Schreiber trying to do the worst accent he's ever done in his life. Don't you know who I am? I'm the Juggernaut, bitch! Well, I mean, for anybody who doesn't remember, the the X-Men The Last Stand that we do get, it's the first attempt at the Dark Phoenix storyline. Yeah. And nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. (laughs) Well, so I don't, I actually, I want to point out, like, I don't have a problem with things going off canon. Like, I don't mind when they they switch storylines up and whatever. So I I think a lot of the people had issues with that because it was one of the first times they saw, like, a beloved storyline get told in a not the same way. Mm. So I think a lot, I think people would inter like would would see that movie differently today. That's a that's a good point. You bring up I, I you bring up the idea that this was one of the first times that comic book fans saw movies deviate from the storyline of comic books, which yes. now is just commonplace. I mean, you know, well, yeah, the entirety every- of Infinity War and Endgame could not be any more different than the Infinity War of the comic books, and nobody has a problem with it. But back in the day, before we had the Marvel franchise, when comic book fans who were the primary filmgoers of comic book movies saw something different, they revolt. Hell, not even X-Men The Last Stand, but also uh, Fantastic Four, The Rise of the Silver Surfer. I remember so many comic book fans being like, wow, Galactus is not an energy cloud. Galactus isn't a being. And they had so many problems with that. Hell, I even had, I think I've said on this podcast before, my favorite superhero slash comic book entity is Silver Surfer. His real name is Norrin Rad. I own Silver Surfer number one. Like, I have his hero clicks. Like, I love Silver Surfer. And they just ruined him in the movie. Yeah, he was really lame in that movie. It's okay if you don't stick with canon, but at least do something good. Yeah, And cool. he was lame yeah. as shit. I used to have a Silver Surfer action figure, like a... A figurine on top of my TV as a kid, actually. Well, I, I guess I, I also want to point out like, the reason I don't mind when when things go off canon is because they've rebooted those universes so many goddamn times. <laughs> yeah, you got to <laughs> switch it up. And like, I don't, I don't know that that had happened as much, or at least it wasn't in. in I wasn't aware of it as much back in the back in the X Men Last Stand days. Sure, so. yeah. No, that, that's that's fair. That's a good point. That that's exactly what I was looking for with this conversation. But I mean, you know. The the part of my brain, the, the filmmaking part of my brain, kind of thinks, well, what if Richard Kelly went from Donnie Darko to an X-Men movie? Like, what would have that 
X-Men movie been like? You know, I'm really interested in that alternate universe type of thing. Uh, I I am too, actually. I would I would have loved to see uh, Richard Kelly's take on, on that script. I think he would be a bigger name. I think Richard Kelly would, would have gotten more attention. Oh, yeah, sure. he'd be more popular. He'd be getting paid more, I bet. He he would have made more things that we've heard of. Yeah, that that yeah. probably would have um, you know propagated his career to what yes, we, we which he's basically unknown now. He hasn't made a movie since two thousand nine. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the other projects he's done, but I mean, I think the person who ended up directing X Men: The Last Stand was Brett Ratner, and Brett Ratner right now is I did a bad touch man. One of those people. So uh, he's 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 got me too'd. He's gotten me too'd and canceled and every form like that. And I think Brett Ratner is one of the ones where it's not allegedly. It's like he legitimately did do some bad things, and they've proven it. So so yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think I think Richard Kelly would have done something that Ratner couldn't have done. Definitely, I think I think that's why. If I remember correctly, X Men: The Last Stand is the one where Magneto like lifts up the Golden Gate Bridge to connect it to Alcatraz. Yeah. And that's like a big set piece in the movie, and it's just like, like you got to be a fucking moron not to look at San Francisco and think of that idea. Like, I got a man that can control metal, a giant bridge to the left of me, and an island to the right of me. Like, that's the lowest hanging fruit, as far as I'm concerned, that you would connect the two. I would hope Richard Kelly would actually have done something clever. <laughs> I mean, they, with Magneto's powers and how powerful he was, there was no shortage of ways for them to get there. Yes. Yes. Like, they could have taken all the cars off the Golden Gate Bridge and fucking welded them together and made their own <laughs> can can we do Can we do a tight five on how stupid Wolverine is written in the first three X-Men movies? Because literally every single, it's X-Men, I think it's X2, it's called, and then X-Men yeah. The Last Stand. Every single movie, Wolverine's like, I'm gonna murder Magneto. Every other character goes, no. Your your bones are made of metal. He'll he'll kill you. And he goes, I don't give a fuck. And then goes, Oh my bones! Like I, they I never just, figured that out as writers. I just want to throw out there that adamantium probably shouldn't be magnetic. <laughs> well, well, then then you got to go back fifty years and talk take. to Stan Lee. <laughs> so like like iron, cobalt, and nickel are like the ferromagnetic metals. Sure. Well, well, uh, no, you're talking way too smart for comic books right now, Ben. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't think. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that adamantium's magnetic. I've just never understood why in all three movies, Wolverine forgets the fact that his literal arch nemesis is Magneto. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fair. I th- I'm pretty sure in the first one, Magneto makes him stab himself. I yeah, think. yeah, I think he, so. I think it's also in the first one where he like, spreads his claws out and just like... Hurts his muscles, I guess. To, yeah, like tries are... to like splay them and and tear his hands apart and that type of stuff. I mean, I mean, the first X Men is a mess because it's all about Rogue and that's just a fucking nightmare of a movie. Can we also point out though that Magneto's clearly not at all concerned about Wolverine in any way? Oh yeah, no, Be- zero. Because if he was, he he would have murdered him in the subway or any of the times he interacted with him. Yep, yep. Which also doesn't make a lot of sense. Other than, I guess, that Magneto doesn't want to harm mutants because, I don't know, mutant power, I guess. isn't. Well, he doesn't just needlessly kill them. He, yeah, he's all about mutants rising up. Yeah, Magneto isn't really fleshed out in the first three movies, if I remember correctly. It's when we get to the altered timeline with Michael Fassbender playing Magneto, yeah. where he's like 
mutants are the next evolution of humanity. We need to uh, nurture them and that type of stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's that's actually in keeping with with a lot of the stuff from like the early cartoons. And yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but I, I just like if he if Wolverine, like he could have just ripped his fucking head off and, <laughs> and like and like. Th- it's like it's not as if your joints are are, uh, are made out of bone. Like, yep. I mean, like, obvi- like, yes, the the bone part of the joints are made of bone, but they're held together like muscles and ligaments and shit. Like, he could have just like spread the bones apart. And yep. I'm, I don't know, I'm just saying. Exactly. Yep, like, those movies are nonsense. Uh, so okay, good, good tight five on X Men right there. <laughs> so. I think the next place I want to go with the background is, uh, I'm not sure if Justin or Ben are aware of this, but one of Richard Kelly's best friends in real life, not after he made Donnie Darko, not, you know, when he started the movie business, but they knew each other from a a, a fairly young age, I think in their teenage years, Richard Kelly is good friends with Kevin Smith. Oh, shit. That is why Kevin Smith is in this movie, which we'll talk about later. I don't want to get there yet, as Simon Theory, the dude who looks like Karl Marx. But I actually got the chance to find and read an interview with Kevin Smith where the interviewer brought up Richard Kelly and Southland Tales. And in this interview, Kevin Smith describes the script, not the final product, the script of Southland Tales as political pulp fiction, something I talked about earlier. But he goes on to actually compare Richard Kelly to Christopher Nolan. And Kevin Smith makes a really good point, because as soon as I say that, comparing Richard Kelly to Christopher Nolan, you might have a lot of alarm alarm bells go off. But this is the point Kevin Smith makes. He says that Nolan became who he is today as a filmmaker because of the special handling that he got from Warner Brothers. And I totally agree with that. If you look into the history of of, uh, Christopher Nolan, Warner Brothers picked him up pretty quickly and let him nurture and do almost whatever he wanted to do as a filmmaker. Kevin Smith goes on to say that even though Christopher Nolan got special treatment from a studio, Richard Kelly has never received that same treatment. Richard Kelly has been kind of the wandering child of filmmaking, even though he's had these great hits. Donnie Darko, his great hit. And Kevin Smith ends this uh, quote or discussion by saying someone needs to Nolanize Richard Kelly. And this really made me think that if Richard Kelly had accepted, say, X-Men The Last Stand, say he had done a big blockbuster movie and it had done well, would a studio given have given him the room to breathe and realize his ideas? Because as it stands... Richard Kelly had no one to help him with Southland Tales. It was just a mishmash and exuberance of ideas that came off as wrong to many people. Did he need that incubation period that Christopher Nolan got with insomnia, well, um, Memento, insomnia, and then finally being given the Dark Knight Batman series and let breathe and realize what he can do as a filmmaker? Thoughts on that? I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at when I said that you know, that he would have had a very different career if he had done. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what I was kind of saying. Christopher Nolan does Following, which I'm not a big fan of, but it's a 70-minute crime noir film. He goes on to do Memento, where he has a clever gimmick for how to tell the story. He goes on to do Insomnia, which is a remake of a Swedish film, but he adds a lot more humanity to it. And then people see this, and they go, hey, do you want to do Batman? 
one of the biggest properties in existence of the world. What if Richard Kelly had done that with X-Men? I, right. I, it, it's, a mech. It's, it's such a neat thought idea. Yeah, I think it's kind of a shame we haven't gotten more Richard Kelly. Because it's clear he makes really intriguing and interesting films. So to see what else he could have done and, and what else he could have gone on to make, it's interesting. I think the idea is that um, when you talk about Nolan going to Warner Brothers, when you talk about any big director going to a studio, that they have some sense of being reined in. And I think in terms of a grand scale movie of an of a big box office, you know, success in a movie making a lot of money and getting a lot of good word of mouth, Southland Tales could have been that, but he had no one to rein him in. There were too many ideas. There's too much density in Southland Tales. That it's it's actually I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's a that's another one of the kind of relationships between the liberal and conservative. Um, sex of humanity, sure. which is that the the liberals tend to have a lot of ideas, uh, but about 90% of them are bad. And, and, it, and, it, and it's the it's the conservative's job, the conservative who doesn't really want to change anything to pick the ideas that are worth pursuing. Ben, are you saying that two forms of ideology should come together to form the perfect ideology? Are you Are you saying that, or are you a Nazi? Clearly, you're a Nazi. Uh, <laughs> That's too extreme for today's political age. Either uh, one is right or one is wrong. Don't you dare say genetic algorithms are the best outcome. Well, I mean, there's a reason we call them wings, I guess. Because you <laughs> oh, need two of them to fly. Oh, that's God. a good one. <laughs> that was good. This, uh, this, uh, like Southland Tales, I think that this episode might go over the cinema audience's head. I can only hope so. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's just this. This is one of the first times that we're seeing uh, politics enough in the content for me to think it's worth talking about in the episode. Definitely. Um, and I, I'm trying to refrain mostly from like my specific ideas and, and which ideology I, I subscribe to. My general impression, though, is that the left and the right need each other, and they don't seem to realize that. Yeah, ain't that the truth? Justin, any thoughts on that or the uh, the possible Nolanization of a young filmmaker like Richard Kelly? Yeah, like I said, it would have been really interesting to see what else Richard Kelly would have could have gone on to do. And I too think both sides of our political system are cracked <laughs> and need some help. Yeah, we I, I think we are all uh, for the cinema audience. All three of us are in agreement with that. That uh, extremism is never the right answer. <laughs> Yes. Unless you extremely hate Southland Tales. Okay, thanks, Justin. <laughs> Justin Justin's our comedic relief this episode. <laughs> well, you know, we needed it, so. Yes, definitely. Any talk about politics needs some uh, comedic relief, uh, slightly, I would say. Okay, so I, I really wanted to mention that. I loved that kind of comparison to Richard Kelly and Christopher Nolan. Even though they might not have been at the same age when they were up and coming in the film industry, they were coming up in the film industry at the same time. And I think Christopher Nolan, of course, went one direction where he's the dude who can say, hey, I don't care about Corona. Go fucking see my movie in theaters where Richard Kelly is now going. I don't know if I'll ever make a movie again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I, I, I think the next thing I want to go to is um, uh, just to finish out Richard Kelly, something I didn't know until I did my research for this film. Um, of course, as we talked about in our Donnie Darko discussion, in the time vortex we are in, I will relate this once again. Uh, after this movie, 
Southland Tales, he does direct and release the 2009 film The Box with Cameron Diaz. Um, I still have not seen that. For Justin and Ben, I do have a copy of it now, so we will get to watch it one day and discuss it. Uh, if Justin will come back, or I think he's going to run from this podcast forever <laughs> after seeing something <laughs> so boring. Uh, but I'm I was, traumatized. <laughs> I was actually shocked that in 2013, Richard Kelly was in pre-production, like almost a week away from filming for his fourth directorial effort, and it was called Amicus. I could not find any information about what Amicus was about. I had just found that Richard Kelly had written some of it. He'd had some rewrites done by other famous writers, but he was directing it. It was his idea. And I was like, oh, my God, like, why didn't this happen? 2013. The reason that this movie did not go forward, because a week before they started filming, the lead actor that they had died out of nowhere. And they chose not to recast, and they moved on. The studio decided not to recast. That's not up to Richard Kelly. And this movie basically got shelved. That lead actor was James Gandolfini, Tony Soprano himself. Oh, my God. So can you imagine we could have had a fucking Richard Kelly movie with Tony fucking Soprano? That would have blown all three of his previous films out of the water. Oh, my God. That's the greatest movie that's never going to exist. Ben, I don't know if we've talked about this. Earlier this year, I watched all of The Sopranos for the first time, and it is probably one of the greatest things in cinematic history. I I think that, just to relate to our audience once again, because Zach's not here, and Zach gets angry every time I bring up The Sopranos, you think The Sopranos is just mob bosses doing hits and shit like that. No. No. There's extended dream sequences. There's cerebrality to these these episodes. It was one of the most intellectual TV shows I've ever seen about mobs. And it is, I would say at the end of the day, probably my third favorite television show of all time. And that is, that is a big leap seeing it, you know, in the last six months. And I think I've said to Justin, I know I've said to Zach... Um, for years, I went on record and I said the the season two finale of Lost is the best episode of anything ever put to television. Until I saw season five, episode 12 of The Sopranos. That is the only thing that gives that episode of Lost a run for its money. The Sopranos is so good and so deep and so thought-provoking that you are blown away by the fact that, you know, of the series takes place in a therapist's office discussing feelings. Like, I loved it. (laughs) But yeah, James Gandolfini died out of nowhere. If everybody remembers, he just had a heart attack and keeled over, like, at a very young age, I think 52. And that's why Richard Kelly's movie stopped, because they could not find someone to replace James Gandolfini. And I'm very sad about that. What what was that movie called? Amicus. A-M-I-C-U-S. It sounds like Richard Kelly was plagued... And he almost had a career. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, that is upsetting. So I think the last bit of background that I want to touch Has- on... Hashtag give him another chance. Yeah, Richard Kelly. Well, I guess to be fair, just to tie up the Richard Kelly, I didn't do a lot of research into this because I don't know if it exists. I was looking around a lot, not for this recording, but in the last like kind of few months. Everything I've heard, Richard Kelly is working on a Rod Serling biopic. Rod Serling is the creator of The Twilight Zone. And as everybody knows, Ben and Justin and the cinema audience, I love The Twilight Zone. I hate Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. 
I've seen literally every episode of any iteration of the Twilight Zone to exist. Rod Serling is a creative mastermind. I would love to see where Richard Kelly goes with this. The end of the background, before we get back into the film proper, talking about scenes and whatnot, there were, there were two things that I really wanted to highlight, which are um, actors' response to this film. Because, of course, since this Southland Tales has come out, whether it be a can or theatrically, people have interviewed the actors, and they said, well, what do you think about it? The, the first one I want to mention is probably the most insane. Justin Timberlake. Okay, he so... He's good. Oh, oh, my God. We're going to talk about the musical number in this movie. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. But, honestly, from what I found in my research, Justin Timberlake's entire part of this movie, the musical number... His scenes in the uh, the gun chair uh, over Hermosa Beach and his narration, they did it all in 14 hours. Damn. That is unheard of for a movie. And I think that's really cool. Just to tie this together, Justin Timberlake has been interviewed about this movie. The, the big one that stands out in a lot of uh, uh, journalistic representations of Southland Tales, people have asked Justin Timberlake about this movie, and he has laughed and then said, I don't know what this movie is about. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone, bro. And I was like, okay, 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 Justin Timberlake, I could appreciate that. The, the other one I wanted to mention was uh, Wallace Shawn. So Wallace Shawn, of course, is the guy who plays Baron, the wizard, Baron von Westphalen. And he said that he did not understand the script upon his first reading. And even after seeing the finished product three times, he still found it incomprehensible, but liked it very much. <laughs> Boy, this is a very polarizing movie. Like, you fall into one or two camps. Yes, yes. Uh, Curtis Armstrong, who everybody should know as Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, in this movie, he's the guy who puts the monkeys through the trans-dimensional rift at the end. Dr. Siberius X, if you know his character name, like I do. Uh, he described this script as impenetrable but intriguing. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's impenetrable was the word I used. That's fun. <laughs> so... I, I want to tie up this background by saying, I don't want to get into the whole detail of it because there was an actual a lot of great movie-making behind-the-scenes stuff. I did watch the, the Blu-ray bonus features for this film. One of them was about a 30-minute behind-the-scenes film where they really talked about the making of this movie, and I love that stuff. I think you and uh, Justin and Ben, they know I love that behind-the-scenes movie magic. Like, they talk about all of the special effects that went into uh, Takahashi, the Japanese guy's hand getting cut off. They went into all the special effects of Bing Zinnemann getting hit by the car uh, at like two-thirds of the way through the movie. Like they talked about how they do these stunts and special effects, and I was so into that. Uh, ben knows this from our discussion on Cabin in the Woods, that I, I live more for the creation of those creatures than that actual movie. Um, but one of the things that I found to be most revealing about this 30-minute bonus feature was that they interviewed a lot of the actors in the film, the main actors. You know, Curtis Armstrong, uh, Wallace Shawn, The Rock, Sean William Scott, Sarah Michelle Gellar, uh, Nora Dunn, John Larroquette, like a lot of the main actors in this movie. And the thing that stood out to me was that every time we interviewed an actor— they were very metered in their speech. You could tell that they were very, they were being very careful about what they were saying about the film. 
like you could kind of get the sense that they didn't really know how to answer the questions that were being posed to them, but they were trying to be professional as possible. Like there's a <laughs> lot of pauses when The Rock talks, and The Rock is like, I think this character uh, <laughs> is about his uh, – So we have a bunch of people acting, ex- and they have no clue what they're even acting out. Yes, but here's what the – you're telling me. Yes, yes, and, and, and that I think, as I mentioned before, a lot of the actors in this movie didn't really know what they were doing. But then about two-thirds of the way through this 30-minute background feature – we get to Sarah Michelle Geller, and Sarah Michelle Geller talks about her part in the movie at like four hundred words a minute. Like she does not make a pause. Like either she's on the greatest coke in the world, or she fucking gets her point in this movie. And it was such a disjointed thing to see, where you know you have the Rock, like I said, going, "Ah, oh, boxer Santeros is a, uh." uh uh, character in a, a a movie, and then you have Sarah Michelle Geller, who's just like, yeah, I think the whole concept of uh, you know Krista now, she's saying now because she wants to be now, and I feel that with her that we don't want to be left in the dust, even though movies come out in the past and they exist in the future, we don't really know how they're going to be handled. But and I'm like, oh my god, this is whiplash from how these characters or actors are talking about this film. So I have so much more respect for Sarah Michelle Geller after watching this behind the scenes featurette. Because to me, as Ben knows, she's always been Buffy, who is not that great of a character. I think Buffy is supported by everything else in that show. She kind of sucks. But I have so much more respect for Sarah Michelle Gellar as someone of her craft now. Because she's the only person in this 30-minute featurette to actually understand what she was doing in this film. And I love that. (laughs) Have you seen all Buffy? I have seen... All of Buffy, yes. And I hate all of Buffy. Except that first episode joke. I burnt down my gym because it was filled with asbestos. That's the best goddamn joke. Buffy is too goofy for me. Buffy is too goofy creature-oriented for me. It is pretty Especially the early episodes. I don't like the resurrection stuff in Buffy. I I don't like the, the lore that isn't set up. Like, Buffy, as far as I'm concerned, we just learn something new because the plot needs it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, okay. I could see that. I mean, I still love the show. But... I, I know, yeah, Ben does love... I guess, Justin, you're since you're here, what do, you, what do you think about he's Buffy? A, he's a Buffy buff. <laughs> I mean, I've ben, only seen all of it once, but... Ben, are you... Uh, Justin, are you a Buffy fan or an Angel fan? <laughs> Dude, I watched Buffy, you know, I thought Buffy was pretty hot when I was a kid. I never really watched it in any thorough capacity. I'll take Sabrina the Teenage Witch over Buffy any Ooh. day, though. Okay, you're taking the comedy over the lore. Okay. Yes. Okay. I mean, okay. I, wa- I, like I watched it. Sabrina also, but I didn't watch all of it. Like, I didn't yeah, it. I didn't watch all of that either. I mean, yeah, I've never seen all of those, Sabrina. Those weren't never really. There's a new Sabrina. like shows to watch like... start to finish. Oh, the new there Sabrina is, a new one. is garbage. I, hate I don't want to get like into Sabrina. It's just like this fun thing I'd watch when I was a kid when it was on. Not the kind of thing I want to like. There's, there's a talking cat. That's all the audience yeah. is. Salem, yeah. There's magic and there's a talking cat. I'm good. Just give me zany episodes and I'm I'm cool with it. Caroline Lay is one of the ants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, everybody, cinema audience, not Ben and Justin, because I know they will completely disregard this. If you have a Hulu account... 
go to Hulu, search Sabrina Down Under. It's one of the Sabrina the Teenage Witch movies, and it is fantastic. I love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Ready? Don't laugh, Ben. Yet. One of the major plots of this movie is Salem trying to fuck another cat. Like, that's not the nice. B plot. That's the main plot of this movie is Salem finding another talking cat trying to fuck it. <laughs> I get behind that. That's that's very feminist considering I think cats generally rape. So it's good that he's trying. He's looking for consent. He's not forcing himself. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Oh, Respect, that's good. That's Respect. good. I think the other thing I want to mention, I there wasn't a second bonus feature on the Blu-ray, uh, which is a nine-minute animated feature called "This Is the Way the World Ends." It de- it describes from the point of two talking octopuses, octopi, about how humans lost themselves to greed, corporations, animosity, that type of stuff. There was really nothing special about that. There were some cool visuals, but I didn't really think it added a lot to the movie. In and of itself. So with that... I want to say this about talking octopi. Without humans, there's no way they would be possible. <laughs> they can fuck themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, they do They do take place afterwards. So, I mean, you know. It's a, it's a... I guess the one thing, there is a pretty cool visual in this animated short where, like, the, the two main character octopuses, octopi, they're looking over, like, this concentration camp of radiated creatures... And all of the radiated creatures are in the shape of America. And that's a pretty cool visual. And I'm just like, I don't really know what they're going for, but I like it. <laughs> Let's throw it. We are, we are in free form now for the movie. Justin, we'll throw it over to you. What do you got? Any, any kind of main scenes, performances? What did you want to point out about this movie? Yeah. So typically I talk a lot about plot. But I really wasn't into the plot a whole lot in this movie. Yeah, we got that. But what I did notice a lot was the filming. So I really liked how all the shots were so chaotic. Like, I really got a strong post-apocalyptic vibe where everything was just kind of a mess and, like, a big sort of destroyed, scorched earth vibe. I really liked the opening scene, how it was all that handheld cam stuff, and then you just see an atomic bomb going off. Yeah, yeah. That was awesome. That paired with the score makes that hit hard, for sure. Yeah. And there wasn't a whole lot of specific scenes that, I don't know, really jumped out. The musical number, I thought, was was, was pretty fun, to be honest. I also love that song. So. I think I want to cut you off there. I think I'm just going to go ahead and say, Justin Timberlake, his choreography and the lip-syncing to the killers, all these things that I've done, this might be one of... No, not might be, is one of my favorite scenes in cinematic history. I love this scene. For every single reason, the eyeline of the dancers, the way the camera moves, the way the camera tracks Justin Timberlake, the way that constantly in the background we're seeing the smiley face sticker with the scar on it to represent his face with the scar on it. Dude, this scene might be perfect. And it's got, I got soul... But I'm not a soldier. Did you know about but that song before this movie, Justin? Oh yeah, yeah, dude. I remember back in big time 2004. I was listening to Hot Fuss. I I still own that CD. It's in my car. Hot Fuss by the Killers. That is one of those songs that I really latched onto. Um, I don't I know. know ben, you were playing that album when you were over at my place. Yes, because of this movie. Yeah, I, and Ben, I don't know if you remember. There would be a few times we would hang out with Andy, and I would say to Andy. 
Andy, you're a star. And he would be like, what are you saying to me, Rob? And I'm like, it's a killer song. That's from the same album that this song is on. <laughs> right on. Ben, what did you think about that scene? I, I definitely, I, I don't have anything like nearly as maybe insightful to say as, as what you guys have, have talked about thus far. But I think that the scene flowed very well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, like it was, it was a smooth experience. Uh, and the music was very fitting, and uh, I think overall, like it didn't feel nothing about it felt forced. It all felt appropriate. It it really, as far as I'm concerned, that might be the heart of the movie, like a a soldier being damaged by friendly fire who is now turned to drugs and shooting people on the Hermosa Pier. He sings, you know, over and in last call for sin. Everything's lost, but everything's won. All these things that I've done. Like, it is the encapsulation of, well, what the hell did we do in a war as a country? Um, yeah. I, I did like listening to him say, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier over and over again, because he was a soldier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? And I love, so at the little. beginning, he, he like, he, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. And he holds up his dog tags. Yeah. It's, it's immaculate. And I love the fact that all the dancers are dressed like Marilyn Monroe. For if anybody has forgotten, Marilyn Monroe started as a World War II Rosie the Riveter type of photo girl. Like, her yeah. point was to uh, motivate soldiers. That is what she did. And before she was even Marilyn Monroe, she was working in a factory creating bullets. Like, that's her backstory. And so oh, it's, just, it's just inspired. That whole scene is fucking inspired. Yeah, good I mean, work, I, I, Mr. I Jelly. I agree, it's really well done. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, anything else? Any other scenes, Justin, that you had, or just uh, that overall? Yeah. So, so the last one was um, the ending. I really liked the whole vibe on the ship. There was that blue tint, and we followed the Chinese actress around for oh. quite a bit. Basically, from the start of her, where it really like follows her path, yeah. opening the door to the end. I thought all of that was just incredibly well shot, you know, up until literally the end of the movie. That was, is a was fantastic really well tracking. That's called a tracking shot, Justin. Uh, yeah. We follow Thanks. one thing throughout a lot of stuff, but Oh my God, the woman that plays serpentine in this movie, her name is Bai Ling. She is a great actress. I've only seen her in a few American things. She's like a huge, you know, Asian actress. And when she is just walking through the different rooms of the Mega Zeppelin and dancing, I'm just like, I'm there. I feel like I'm in the room with her. It's so enthralling. Yeah, and you're like, who, who just walks through a room like this? <laughs> I, I do have to say that her dancing did feel out of place. Like, incredibly out of place. <laughs> yeah, that's what I... In that shot. That's what I thought. I was like, who just does that? But it was... It was it, it, it pulled you in, you know? It was intriguing, just her think... her, move, her movement, her motion. Yeah, and I, I also don't think she's that big. She's very tiny, actually. Very, very tiny. But, uh, well, I have to say, what would happen <laughs> if they ben. shake hands? Ben. The fourth dimension would collapse upon flash. itself. You, you stupid, stupid bitch. bitch. Roland Tabler? His twin brother? They're the same person, aren't they? Two identical souls walking the face of the earth, coexisting in the same domain of chaos. What will happen? 
fourth dimension will collapse upon itself. You stupid bitch. Justin, this is something I want to bring up from your review as well. You said that you would put comedy in air quotes. I laughed at a lot of this movie. I didn't laugh this once. This movie is so funny. <laughs> I've said so much about how much I love time travel, and this is like the one time I was just like, I hate this. Well, the time travel was very, like, it wasn't announced until very late in the movie. The time right, and I was like, oh, and now, of course, they're forcing time travel into the plot. <laughs> I think that the humor is separate from that, though. I mean, we get the beginning where, like, like Sarah Michelle Geller is like, violence is a big problem in our society today. That's why I don't do anal. And and then we go to later on where he's like, you know, uh, the oceanography disaster specialist. And she goes, oh, astrophysicist, the oceanography disaster specialist. And there is no stopping what can't be stopped. Only God can stop it. But the New York Times said God is dead. So in the end, I die in a very tragic downtown shootout while whispering my theory to Dr. Muriel Fox, the oceanography disaster specialist. Astrophysicist. The oceanography disaster specialist. It's just like, there's so much low-key humor in this movie, I thought. I was laughing almost constantly. I, I really yeah, I didn't enjoyed... find any of it funny. <laughs> I enjoyed the thing where, where she said that the pilgrims showed up and ended the Native American orgy of freedom. But deep down inside, everyone wishes they were a porn star. Really? We're a bisexual nation living in denial. All because of a bunch of nerds. A bunch of nerds who got off a boat in the 15th century and decided that sex was something to be ashamed of. All the pilgrims did was ruin the American Indian orgy of freedom. We're a oh, bisexual yeah. nation, canceled because of some nerds. Some nerds that showed up on, the, on Mayrock or whatever she says. <laughs> <laughs> Plymouth Rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, so I don't know that I would go so far as to call it a comedy, but I did laugh at a few things in it. Well, how can how can you not laugh at the scene with Starlevon Luft going, "I want to suck your dick. <laughs> if you don't let me suck your dick, I'll kill myself." <laughs> Take your pants off right now, or I'm gonna pull the trigger. If you should succeed, remember me, my love. Remember my name. I will. I... I want to suck your dick. If you don't let me suck your dick, I'm gonna kill myself. Calm down, calm down, calm down. I don't want to live in a world where I can't have you. Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Take your pants off right now, or I'm gonna pull the trigger. Dude, that is fucking comedy gold as far as I'm concerned. The, the Dion and Dream fight thing is also pretty good. Don't marry a hoe. You can't make a hoe a housewife. I don't want to be a housewife. I want to suck dick. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I. That's what I like to do. Transform. Breathe. Dream. Did you fuck him? Yeah, I fucked him. Oh. 
you bitch! I fucked your brother last night too! Oh, I'll fuck you, him in front of you too! You fucking slut! Don't point your finger at me! Bitch, I'll fucking kill you! You kill me, I'll get the fucking cops out of here so fast! How? 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 You're gonna be dead! I know people! They're so good at improv. Shh. Oh, I fucking hate you! I fucking hate you! Don't you. marry your home! I wish we you never got married! You can't make one housewife! You can't! Fuck! I don't wanna be a fucking housewife! I like to suck dick! Oh. That's what I like to do! <laughs> oh, that's Wood... So the guy who plays Dion is Wood Harris? who at this time in, in filmmaking is either just at the end or coming off of The Wire as Avon Barksdale, where he is a drug kingpin. And then you see him in this movie with a prosthetic nose and prosthetic fingers going, Oh, you bitch, did you fuck him? Like, I cannot I, stop I laughing. I brother. I'm fucking in front of you. <laughs> Don't marry a hoe. Oh, my God, Justin. You were outvoted. This is a hilarious movie. <laughs> Dude, I, like, that, I told you how I feel about that raunchy shit. Like, So the part where he was like, I'll kill you. And she's like, I'll get the cops here so fast. How are you going like, to do that? You'll be dead. <laughs> that, that I did enjoy great. that scene. I did. I wasn't like laughing, but I, th- I, I thought that was like kind of funny. I mean, In I, a way that doesn't make you laugh, but is kind of funny. That transcends funny. Then you're in awe of it, Justin. <laughs> I, I mean, most of the time when I'm by myself, I don't, I don't do that much actual laughing out loud. But like, I like smile and whatever, smirk a little bit. Yeah, um, something's got to be really good for me to laugh when I'm I mean, alone. Laughter is generally, I think, a signaling thing for humans. So like, we laugh to indicate to other people that we exactly. found things funny. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's a, it like, if I was watching this with somebody else, would I have laughed? Maybe. But how did you not laugh, Justin? When Mandy Moore is looking at a DVD case and we get a shot of the DVD case that says Cock Chuggers 2, Cock Chugging. <laughs> no, she actually, so I couldn't read Cock Chugging on it, but she actually says Cock Chuggers 2, Cock oh, Chugging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Daddy, what if this gets out? <laughs> let, let me see the DVD. No. <laughs> no. Can, can we just all agree? I know I'm jumping all over the place. Can we just all agree, the, the performances in this movie are fantastic. I think I love every single actor and actress, or actor if we're being progressive, in this movie, except Mandy Moore. Mandy Moore sucks in this movie. I really hate her facial expressions when she's like, Daddy, we have to give them anything they want. We can't let the DVD get out. And I'm like, oh my god, stop it. Stop are you sure it. you just... You don't just hate the character she was playing. Go back to John Tucker must die, Mandy Moore. <laughs> uh, I think she was fine. No, I she, think she was a war crime as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I think that you're you just don't like expressive women. Well, no, I like I like oh, Krista shit, now. Krista now is fine. She was not that expressive. She had her own energy drink. <laughs> that does not make a person expressive. <laughs> I had my own energy drink earlier today. Well, hey, I love... Well, probably my favorite performance in the movie, to counter contradict what you're saying, is Cindy Pinzicki, Nora Dunn, as, oh, the, yeah. as Deep Throat 2. She's fantastic in this movie. Deep Throat 2, the bitch is back? Is that Deep, what... Deep Throat 2, I presume. <laughs> Do we all know who Deep Throat is, or is that something you guys are blissfully unaware of as well? I Yeah, I don't know who Deep Throat is. Oh, yeah, I don't think I know any of their names. How, oh my god, oh my god. This is when I put my head in my hands and I say, how the hell am I recording things with these people? Deep Throat <laughs> is the fucking informant that broke the Watergate scandal. 
Follow the money, and this is Deep Throat 2. Follow the sex, and... I hate everybody I'm talking... Except Ben, I guess, because we're doing things in the future. I hate you, Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. I hate you more. Whenever she first says it, she says something like Deep Throat 2, the bitch is back. The bitch I thought that was back. supposed to be like the subtitle. Is that that's the joke they were going for? Well, though, yeah, right? I think so because it's like cock chuggers too, cock chugging. Like in this era of media, everything needs a subtitle. Yeah. So she's Deep Throat 2, the bitch is back, which I think is a great subtitle for a second iteration of a porn movie. Deep Throat originally was not a porn, even though I mean, well, no, I'm I'm a sensible man. I don't know what Deep Throat means in terms of porn. It's the guy who broke the Watergate scandal. Um, so, Was so, that like his last name, Deep Throat? No, no I, it's his code name. It's his code name. I think they've figured out That's who... what they chose? So they, they consciously chose that name? Yeah, back in the 60s. Um, no, someone it was literally the chose AOL that name. random name generator that gave him Deep Throat. Mark Felt is Deep Throat's real name. That was the guy who broke the Watergate scandal. Allegedly. They only called him Deep Throat in the movie, you're saying? No, no, he called himself Deep Throat in real life. Why? I don't so know. Would, He's well, dead now. I don't think we'll ever get to know unless we fucking shit. research it. Probably That's so they wouldn't know his real name. Yeah, he, he, Deep Throat, follow the money. How have you fucking guys never heard of this shit? Do you know what? Do I need to explain what Watergate was? No, we know what Watergate it's, is. It's I don't think you know what Watergate rock. is, Justin. It's very obviously. <laughs> Shut up. It's an it's a, like an iron chain link fence that holds back the water. <laughs> Ready? I'm gonna blow Justin's mind. Watergate was actually a name of a hotel in the scandal. It was. That's true. Justin's like speaking of Watergate. I Richard watched a whole Nixon was president. <laughs> I watched a whole engineering video on dams recently. So that I know all about Watergate. Watergate. Trust okay, okay, okay. I, I I have another scene that I want to mention, which I think will be quick, and I'll throw it to Ben. Um, I have to mention it because I think it's only fair for Cinemodities. It's uh, something we have done for a long, long time, which I, we should have done earlier. N-word alert. This movie contains the N-word. Like, whoa. And The Rock, Ben. The Rock says the N-word. He does. So do you hate The Rock now? Do you uh, hate the N-word? Do you support neo-Marxism? What are we getting at I, here? I mean, no. No to all I, of them? <laughs> I don't hate The Rock at all. I think he's a fantabulous actor. Do you think the rundown would have benefited from both Sean William Scott and The Rock saying the N-word? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no? I just wanted... No, that was that was a total joke. I just wanted to get you guys' thoughts. Um, I don't think the N-word, personally, me, I don't think it was used egregiously. The movie kind of plays it as that's what they're going for, to create a racist cop. But it was yeah. still very shocking right, in 2020, right. this day and age, to hear these two actors we know really well say the N-word nonchalantly, yeah, too. Anymore. Well, the, uh, and the subtitles definitely had the hard R, so... Ooh, okay, okay. That's, that was, we were not getting an A apostrophe situation. Justin, um, what were your thoughts? Uh, did you pause the movie and, uh, and chant about it? No, I mean, I I'll said, like, that you, out if you, you want said, me to. right, <laughs> he was trying to play the bad cop, and he was intentionally trying to be racist, so he dropped it. But it was still just kind of like watching it 2020, like, you don't get that as much anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's, right? It, it, it's, you, it's, a, it's a sign of the times this movie it, came out in. If this movie came out today, if that scene was made today, those actors would be canceled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, they would have had to make exist. it, like, they would have had him like 
probably beat a black guy, but not do racial slurs, I would think, well, honestly. I, I, I think the scene would still exist, but The Rock and Sean William Scott, I think they would have said, if a director wanted them to say that, they would have said, no, I'm not going to say that, and they would have replaced it with blacks. Yeah, right. probably. Well, they that... wouldn't have chose the way to be racist, the way to display I'm a racist oh. cop as, oh, I said the N-word, I'm okay. racist. That, they would have just approached it from some different angle to show that they're racist. Yeah, they would have stopped and frisked somebody. Or yeah, somebody. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're they both right. They would have shot a black guy or, like, arrested well, a black guy for no I reason mean, or something. They, they did do that. that. <laughs> well, well, when The Rock yeah. said, you know, don't you think emotions play into your role as a police officer, then, like, Sean William Scott would have said, we treat every day like uh, protective citizens. And then there would have been something where he, like, sees a car stopped on the side of the road. He would have pulled over and mistreated a, uh, an African-American person, that type of thing. I think that's what you guys are saying. Yeah. yeah. We would have seen it more visually than uh, audi- um, audiophonically, I guess. Is that the, the scene makes sense with them saying the N-word? I mean, or they would have sense, we... said stuff without it just being like, I said the N-word, I'm racist. They would yeah. have been more, you know, they yeah, would just yeah. approach it. They, they would have said, we should have never stopped redlining or something. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, honestly, also, Ben, they could have just people. they could have just said stop and frisk, and probably people would get that in this day and age. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah if even if even like they need to bring stop and frisk down to L.A. because you know it's like the whole thing up in New York or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Make like a Compton joke or something. Yep. Straight bring it to Compton or some shit. I had to bring that up. N word alert for this movie. Uh, if you're if you're listening to the what the the two hours plus of this discussion so far, you will hear the N word in this movie. <laughs> um, the other thing you'll see in this movie, in both the theatrical and the director's cut, two cars have sex. Yeah. Oh my God, do I love that scene, man! I love it. That's I think I think the only thing other want to I want to say about the scene is that when we get a close up of one of the uh, car's mirrors. It says it really is as big as it appears. Not <laughs> images and mirrors seem bigger than they appear. It says it is really is as big as it appears. I mean, I I kind of live for this shit. I want to see one exhaust pipe extend and one exhaust pipe turn into a vagina so two cars can fuck. This is what film is about as far as I'm concerned. Am I alone there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's right up there with cuties for me. Don't uh, don't worry, sir. This is the European version. <laughs> Out of all the sex jokes, you know, the one thing that's okay for me is the car sex. I love the car I, sex. Scene. I get off on that shit. I love the car sex scene. The car sex scene should get an Oscar, as far as I'm concerned. Do you play that one on repeat. That's my that's my screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> like a gif of it. Well, well, the best part about it is that it's revealed to be a commercial for the Trier Saltair, and when we get the title card come up, it goes, the Trier Saltair, coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, this is what I live for in movies! <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So, with that being said, I think that was a lot of the scenes I want to talk about. Uh, ben, were there any you wanted to pick up on or highlight? Um, I do think, like, when Bookman gets shot by the sniper i that that whole kind of like their characters just came across me as so fucking <laughs> i mean i'm sorry stupid we <laughs> that out? i i like the fact i'm pretty sure in, in in the rundown and walking tall you say 
and I don't bleep it out because I'm fine with it. And now you're correcting yourself three weeks later. <laughs> like, like I already mentioned why how I didn't really understand what their motivation was for trying to hunt down this tape or try or having the tape created at all in the first place or, or setting up the double murder. Like I, I didn't, their whole motivations were, were mysterious to me. Sure. And then they go out in public where presumably they know snipers are instructed to murder people who fire guns. They have to know. And, yeah. And Bookman shoots a gun straight into the air while standing on a table, making himself an easy target for a sniper. I just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So like, I thought that was really John dumb. Lovitz going, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then what's her face? The, uh, the lady that he's with Sherry O'Terry. Sure. Yeah. She's a fantastic actress. She plays Zora Carmichael's in this movie. I've loved right, Sherry O'Terry for so long. And uh, I love I, – I, just to, to backtrack, I love her scene when she tries to pay the ice cream armorer in a, in a check. And With he a goes, check, yeah. What, you don't take a personal check? No, I don't fucking take a check. Get out of here, you Cro-Magnon bitch. Then <laughs> <laughs> she oh, starts so, beating his ass. Fun fact about the subtitles. Uh, it actually said two words, Cro-Magnon, <laughs> not, not Cro-Magnon. <laughs> that's just – Whatever. So, uh, Cinemodities is on a winning streak. Uh, Cinemodities 10,000, subtitle zero. Every single subtitle file in the history of humanity has sucked, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yep, um, subtitles are fucking stupid. Was, I like subtitles. Well, I, well no, I you can like subtitles, but... but they're wrong. 100% of the time, at some point in the movie, they are wrong. That's my problem with them. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that anything else really stood out to me, other than like we've talked about a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that already, you know, we've already talked about yeah. the you stupid bitch scene and the. <laughs> oh my god! You got my Snapchats when I was watching that, right? Uh, yes, I, did. I think yeah. I think I Snapchatted that scene six times in a day. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, Ben, um, did you have thoughts on Kevin Smith? Because Kevin Smith does play a role in this movie. He's the dude in the wheelchair. He's Simon Theory. He's the one that, you know, are you dumb or will are you stupid or willfully ignorant? I said put your sidearm down. That's right. Kevin Smith in so much makeup but doing nothing to hide his voice. Yeah, absolutely. His uh he was almost unrecognizable as a as a person. What is the game, Dungeon Master? Yep. But his voice Gave it away immediately. Yep, yep. I, I mean, I, he's, his voice is very distinctive to me. I recognize him. You know, I, I think that's why I'm asking you. I know on our Chasing Amy episode, um, that was we talked about our, our feelings on Kevin Smith. Did you have any kind of hardcore yay or nay feelings on him in this movie as this kind of you know tangential character almost? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think his acting was on par with, with the rest of what we saw in the movie. I think, yeah. it, I think he did a good job as the character. Uh, I don't think... The character made a big impression on me, though, unfortunately, because it, it, he did have such limited screen time. Yeah. But uh, I, I guess one thing we, we could mention is that the uh, the time the only time that the ground to air rocket launcher was used was not from the ground. As <laughs> as as Cindy Pinzicki says, John Larroquette goes, "What is that?" And she goes, "It's a flying ice cream truck." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. Uh, but, but earlier, Zora is asked about the rocket launcher, and he says it's a heat-seeking um, ground-to-air air missile. To, uh, gr- ground missile launcher. And you can't afford from, it. 
from Syria yep. specifically. I, I don't know why that's important. I don't is Syria an arms dealer? I don't I don't know. But but it's fired from on top of a flying ice cream truck, which I think just kind of bummed me out because oh, okay. Okay. I don't think that he needed to be on the ice cream truck to use the ground to air <laughs> rocket launch, missile launcher to shoot something that was in the air. So the whole like the whole flying ice cream truck, as as neat or whatever as it was, was completely contrived and unnecessary. And uh, and Sean William Scott, like the 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 end result of him touching himself. Not as gross as it sounds, uh, being, being that it made an ice cream truck fly uh, when presumably the fourth dimension was supposed to collapse on itself. Uh, I think all of that was just kind of nonsense, I guess. I, I don't really feel the same way. I think that the ice cream truck flying with what we see is the process of the fourth dimension collapsing on itself and the end of the world. But I think the thing that is more pertinent to this discussion is the fact that I love that one version of Roland Tavener and uh, Martin Kefauver, the dude who says dog in every other sentence, they rip the ATM out of the wall, and the ATM is what the ice cream truck hits to flip over. That is where I'm like, wow, this is fucking Pulp Fiction. Like, this is coincidence the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that that definitely was like... I I assumed that was something about the existence of the same soul in two different vessels or whatever that, they that whole spiel. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I assumed that it was not only that they would have to cross paths, but the actions of, of one would like, that was some kind of, um, almost actually back, back to some Donnie Darko shit where like the actual action of one had to impact the other yep, yep. Uh, type of scenario. But uh, no, I, I mean, so that that I thought was was interesting. But again, like you can force coincidences, coincidences to happen in tell in, in movie. Fair. So that that didn't really um, kind of that didn't really redeem the fact that I felt a lot of what we saw after that was just like unnecessary. It's like it would have been great if I was convinced that the flying ice cream truck made sense. I would have been happier, I guess. I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't know, like the fourth dimension, uh, assuming it's something like time, I don't I don't know what flying has to do with it falling apart. Understandable, understandable. Um, but again, I'm not a, what was it, an oceanology disaster specialist? Oceanography, disaster, oceanography specialist. disaster specialist. Astrophysicist, the oceanography disaster specialist. I, well, and that, so you mentioned that, I, I, I kind of want to say, like, it actually made sense, like the whole oceanography thing, when I thought, that fluid karma was supposed to be harnessing energy from the waves. <laughs> and then Rob threw you for a loop. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I knew from the movie it didn't because fluid karma was also a drug, which I don't, I don't get how you go from harnessing energy of waves to being a drug. So I knew that that wasn't what fluid karma had to have been. But, but if that was what slowed down the planet, oceanography disaster specialist would have made perfect fucking sense. Fair, fair. Okay, I think but they um, don't want it to make sense. Well, that's what it seems like. That's, I feel like this... uh, that's where we disagree, as I think we're wrapping in a circle. So, with all that being said, we can get to our real questions, which is, of course, something that we need from all of our hosts, especially when we are continuing on with this r- The Good, The Bad, The Richard Kelly series. And I'll throw it over to Justin first. Feel free to do them together. Cinemodities in Late Night, what do you think, man? Okay, well... This is definitely not a late night movie because you should not watch this movie. If you're even <laughs> listening to this po- this far in, you've gotten more Southland tales than you will ever need. So at the same time, juxtapose this with Rob saying this is the most important episode of Cinemodities in existence. 
<laughs> so this is a no period of time ever movie. Okay. And Cinemodity, yeah, this shit was just weird as hell. So it was it was odd in, in, in so many ways. I'll, I'll have to give it that. Okay, okay. Ben, I'll throw it over you next. Mr. Uh, the Rock shets, sets, shets, sets shit straight. Uh, I think before we ask you cinemizing late night, after this discussion, um, do you have any changes to the question I asked you at the beginning? Do you think The Rock sets shit straight in this movie? I, I might think that The Rock is even more irrelevant in this movie <laughs> than, than I did to begin with. I just noticed, like... Every time I feel like I say the rock set shit straight, I move my head a little bit with each beat, like the rock set shit straight. Uh, but okay, okay, you have no updates. But then, what do you think about Cinemodity and Late Night for Southland Tales? So I, I, I would like to say that this is an odd movie, but I, I'm also hesitant to say that making a movie intentionally difficult to understand shouldn't classify it as odd. Okay. But that is odd, and then there there were some other there were some other things about the movie that maybe qualified as an oddity. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go ahead and say it is a cinemodity, um, especially given a lot of the background that you mentioned. It's it's history with the Cannes Film Festival and all that. It's it's had a very odd life, and it made so little money. <laughs> Savage. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ben what? is right. I agree with Ben, and I think Justin, you do too. We just laughed about it in different ways. <laughs> He's just like that was just the like he low key dissed the shit out of this movie. Uh, what I what I say is a late night movie. I, my understanding is that this is what, what I ask or, or tell somebody else to watch this, or if I'm with them and can force them to watch a movie, would I do this? What I what, I was gonna say, what I do this to them, which I think betrays some of my feelings. Um, <laughs> what what I make them watch this movie? Would I do Southland Tales to another human? <laughs> Uh, I mean, so I, I did make my sister watch this movie with me when I visited her, but that was only because I hadn't seen it yet. I think only if I really disliked the person. Uh, but I don't even know if I could put myself through that. So They'd okay. have to be really unbearable if you'd rather watch Southland Tales with them than just hang out with them. I mean, have you met Rob? <laughs> hey yo <laughs> And see, the thing about Rob is he would appreciate it, too, because he'd be like, I love... This fucking movie. This, this would yeah. be the shit that if you force this on me, you'd fall asleep 30 minutes in, and two hours later, I would be shaking your shoulders going, Oh my god, Ben, you've changed my life! <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's right. So, so I, I think it falls into me. Um, Cinemodities, I, I think I'm going to echo the sentiments of, of my two co-hosts. Abso-fucking-lutely. Holy shit. Not only do I think this is a cinematic oddity, I want to go so far as to say that this movie is an example of why this podcast started in the first place. Like, th this is a textbook definition, and I might say Hall of Fame cinemodity, because of all the different responses it gets from people, because of all the confusion surrounding the existence and the context of this movie, this, is, this fits the bill in every single way, shape, or form. And I think you two guys might be surprised, but for late night... I have to say, no way. This is no not way. a late night movie. This movie, if anything, is an academic exercise. And you should not watch those late at night. Like, this is something that students in a filmmaking classroom should watch at 11 in the morning when they are just in, into it for three hours and they're going to be having a discussion afterwards. You cannot show this to someone late at night 
because, oh my god, one of the biggest banes of the late-night movie existence that I've always felt is people checking out. I never want people to check out during a late-night movie, and dude, people will check out during this film, as I think we've discussed. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually shocked that for all of our different thoughts, we've reached almost the same conclusion <laughs> for these topics. Which I love, by the way, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but yes, uh, if anything, I describe this film as an academic exercise. <laughs> I agree with the use of the word exercise. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, I did some curls today, I did some push-ups, I did ten miles on the bike, and I watched Southland Tales. <laughs> Southland Tales was the most grueling part of that. Oh, God. <laughs> this movie. This movie is immaculate. I just wanted to get back on the bike. This movie yeah. is immaculate. Okay, with that being said, we've, we finished that. Okay, we're done. <laughs> I get the last word. This movie is immaculate. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We have to go to snacks now because we got to get the snacks, the restaurant influence for all three of us. And I think I want to start by probably the most low-hanging fruit um, we need a Cinemodities Mega Zeppelin. Like, we need a Mega Zeppelin to launch out of the Cinemodities restaurant to host Cinemodities parties, which will be a Mega Zeppelin representation of Cinemodities, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's acceptable, as long as it isn't full of an explodable gas. <laughs> oh, it will be. Like, like, if anybody tries to smoke a cigarette, boom, everybody's dead. <laughs> Pretty sure Boxer Santeros fires a gun. At the ceiling. He does. He, do, he does fire a gun. <laughs> if you don't suck my dick, I'm going to evacuate this mega Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the line in the movie, but it might as well be. So that was my first thing. Uh, we have talked about a long time ago a Cinemodities cruise ship. Um, so I wanted to add a Cinemodities mega Zeppelin. I have some other snacks, of course, but I figured I'd throw it over to you guys. Justin, I think I want to start with you because every time you're on here, you come in hard and fast with one thing. Is that still the case, or do you have something else for this episode? Dude, I can't think of anything. Well, fuck. <laughs> this truly might be your last episode of Cinemodities. I think that's the barrier to entry to for future episodes of Cinemodities. You have to do at least one snack. I mean, I can <laughs> say something. It's going to be terrible, though. Well, well, you think about your decision, and Ben, I'll throw it over to you. What do you have? <laughs> uh, so I'm having trouble thinking of a name for it. I think something like a lead snack or something like that. Uh, we will just give you a gun so you can kill yourself. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> God damn. Dude, okay, okay. Are you saying this in the sense that you dislike this movie so much that any part of the restaurant that is affiliated with it deserves death? Or are you saying something different? It's just a reference to Keith Albert trying to kill himself. Okay, uh, that's better than... Because Zach and I, when we did Doctor Sleep, which I still to this day for our cinema audience consider the worst film ever. Period. I was so against that movie, I said it should have no part of the restaurant, and Zach said no, it should be a cyanide pill. So you kill yourself when you think about this movie in the restaurant. Is God that where damn. you're coming from? Or you're just thinking about the movie itself? That, that's fair. I think that's an appropriate response. I don't like that. <laughs> I, I believe you. I'm the one on the restaurant floor, Ben. I don't like this killing people. How do we get rid of the bodies? <laughs> you, you don't like it because of how messy it is? or like That's bad for PR. Oh, 90% okay, so of the about... dishes kill people, Rob. 
That's okay. Yeah. That's killed by the restaurant. I don't want people to kill themselves because they don't want to be in the restaurant. I mean, that is going to happen anyway. There's a um, distinction. We, <laughs> we, we, should, uh, we should also have one of these time rift things where you can make a copy of yourself. Ooh. Okay, okay. And then you can end up with infinitely many copies of yourself. One of them will be a pimp? I mean, all of them are probably pimps. Oh wow! We're and they're, just, we're and they're just blowing the up the population ones. of the restaurant at this point. Yeah, <laughs> they're 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 going to pimp out the other ones. Okay, I think they're I'm going to have a, I think I'm going to have a difficult time uh, recording this in the cinemati spreadsheet, but I will go next. Um, maybe wait, something... I have one. No, okay, just I'm getting to you. Jesus fucking Christ! I have an easy one. <laughs> the rock salad. Because God damn it! I was gonna do something with the rock. Because at the end of chapter four in this movie, we get to see the rock and Sean William Scott at the sidewalk cafe, which is a real place in LA, and the rock is eating a salad. So I wanna serve the rock salad, which is a salad with lettuce, baby spinach, chicken strips, dried cranberries, shredded cheese, and pebbles. Because that's how we get the rock involved. There's pebbles. There's little rocks. I think that's great. I would eat the shit out of that, except for the rocks. <laughs> okay, Justin, now you can go. Unless I've taken it from you, I'll, I'll, I'll take the, the torch back because I have a few other snacks. I don't know. Can I still do something with the rock? Well, yes. yeah, of course. Um, unless you're going to repeat what I just said, then you can't do it. Justin, okay. you've been on this podcast enough times. You know the rules. My menu item is called The Rock. Okay. In honor of this being the series where we just cover The Rock, we're going to have a menu item called The Rock. And when you order it, the staff just brings you out a big fucking rock (laughs) and leaves it on your table. Okay. No explanation, no nothing. And then if somebody else orders The Rock... They come and they take the rock from your table and they put it on the next table's table. Are you saying there's only one rock in the restaurant? It is the rock. Are you you charged based on the amount of time you get to keep it? No, you're charged the same amount regardless. No, I'm vetoing Justin. Yes, it it is a per minute charge for the rock. We need to make money, Justin. Well, I mean, make money. But then if somebody orders it right after, you don't get enough. There's got to be some minimum you put on it. A minimum with a per minute add-on. As uh, as Walter Bung, the ice cream truck purveyor, says, I have a $500 minimum. You didn't say that on the phone call, Mung. My reputation precedes me. (laughs) (laughs) You have to keep the rock for at least $500. (laughs) Okay, okay, I, I like that. I like... I like inedible foods, as Justin knows, for sure. I have some quick ones. We need Krista Now energy drinks. Like, I just yeah. want to sell Krista Now energy drinks with Sarah Michelle Geller's face on it. Like, done. I don't care if it's Red Bull or Monster, just fucking those packaging. Can, Perfect. Can, can we get a mixed drink called the Cock Sugar? And it's just... Ooh! It's a cock and the Krista Now energy drink? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I... It, it would be you would have the energy drink in it, and you would probably also have some kind of cream in there <laughs> to to make it look like you know like you're chugging cock. 
<laughs> in editing, Jeez. I'm going to take that. I'm going to save that little bit. The way you paused between those words, Ben, that was fantastic. But I Chugging cock. Chugging uh, uh, cock. <laughs> I, I think the next one I want to throw in there is something that we get to see The Rock do in this movie. Um, if anybody orders a six-pack of beer, they have to drink from it while it's not dismantled. Like, you cannot dismantle it. Like I Oh, want, that was actually so good. I want all six beers to be, like, steadfast in their six-pack, and you have to open them one at a time and drink them all at the same time type of thing. I loved that visual, where The Rock is just walking down Hermosa Beach, and he's just, like, palming an entire six-pack, drinking one <laughs> beer at a time. <laughs> and, and honestly, Ben, that's where I went, wow. The Rock might be a better actor than I thought he was, because because <laughs> that's a that's a that's a movie thing to do right there. We've talked about him fighting. We've talked about him, you know, kick flipping and and being with the ladies and and you know getting uh, football players rings and all that stuff. But dude, it takes a true actor to fucking pour beer over themselves for a two second scene. <laughs> Fair enough. He does it a few times. He pours beer on himself. I I, I honestly think The Rock had a lot of fun in this movie. I have to say. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So did did you guys have any other snacks, or can I finish up with mine? Uh, I think you can finish them out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, I think the last two that I have, um, in the scene that we get with Dion and Dream, um, after, you know, they're listening in on The Rock and Sean William Scott driving in the police car, um, The Rock says the great line, that uh, this baby processes energy differently. He releases thermonuclear baby farts, and the prophecy of Jericho Kane says that there will be one final thermonuclear baby fart to cause the apocalypse. It all hinges on a top-secret experiment. A young couple comes home from the hospital with a newborn baby. A week goes by, and the baby still hasn't produced a bowel movement. Maybe the baby's just constipated. No, 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 no. This is a very special baby. This baby processes energy differently. Every time it farts, it creates a small earthquake. The prophecy of Jericho Cain says that there will be one final thermonuclear baby fart, which will then trigger the apocalypse. And Sean William Scott response is, I haven't had a bowel movement in six days. And it cuts to Amy Poehler and Wood Harris going, Where does it say in the Bible that people need to shit? Do animals like to shit? And he's like, I think it's not written in the Bible, but it's written in nature. And the whole time they're having this discussion, there is a giant a giant toilet in the background. Yeah. I want every toilet in the Cinemati's restaurant to be that giant. <laughs> Like Somebody you need, you need to jump onto a toilet to use it in the cinemized restaurant. And you're right, Ben. Kenny Chan gets shot and dies in that toilet. Absolutely. <laughs> so giant toilets are my first one, and my last one, Starla von Luft, who is a mole inside of U.S. Ident, the one who has the the boxer Santero shrine set up in her cubicle. We get to see her just. Huh. Fistful pumping Cheetos into her face at a certain point. Oh, yeah. So here's my thought. If somebody orders cheese puffs or Cheetos, I'm not, I'm not, you know, if somebody likes the puffy version rather than the crunchy version, that's fine. When they order that, 
the waiter delivers them in their hand, like as a <laughs> fistful of Cheezo, Cheetos, and they just deliver them d- directly to the customer, like put them in the customer's hand. And here's the kicker. Cinemati's restaurant is not liable for any crushed or damaged Cheetos. What do we think? Salt. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I think Wait, that the, do they show the waiter... them into the, the client's mouth? No, 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 into, yeah, the, yeah. into the client's hand. No, I think that we should oh. shove some of them into the client's mouth. Well, yes. that's where we're getting in a little weird territory because I think Maximo. Yeah, Maximo, you. is this sexual harassment if a waiter <laughs> shoves Cheetos into another customer's face? Is that sexual harassment? We're we're a little timid on the sexual harassment stuff these days. I mean, if they ask for consent, but then shove it in while they're giving consent. Maximo, is ordering an item off of a menu considered sexual consent? (laughs) What if it's in fine print that the waiter's going to shove it into your mouth? Maximo, can we put fine print that disregards human uh, human concept of sexual consent so small that it's unreadable? We're going to get canceled. We've been canceled, Justin. Welcome to the party. (laughs) (laughs) So, with all that being said, I think, uh, uh, I'll throw it over to Justin first. Justin, is there anything you would like to pitch? Where can our audience find you? Where can the cinema audience hear you or play you in chess more? And completely, um, if they would like to uh, get the cock rocked by Justin, where can they do that? Get the cock rocked? Yeah, because nobody rocks the cock like Justin. That's what they say in this movie, right? (laughs) Uh, I'm anonymous. I'm the one and only Salmonberry on chess.com. I honestly thought Justin was going to hit the hang up button as soon as I said that. <laughs> <laughs> so any no, – you got no, no social media or anything to, to pitch, anything like that? Not that I know okay. of. I will, uh, I, will, I will once again put your chess.com username in the show notes for sure. And that leaves me with Ben. Ben, when our audience is not listening to you on Cinemodities, where can they send you memes? <laughs> so I actually uh, I have a new Instagram Ooh, for what? for a project I'm working on. Do I have to go back have... and edit the fucking other Instagrams no, now? No, 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 those <laughs> other ones are still valid. Uh, I am part of a project called Electrum Comics. We are a group of people who are making uh, or are in the process of, of beginning to develop web comics. The Instagram has no content on it yet, but it will, uh, and that's at Electrum Comics. Uh, so that's the Instagram you can find. And then we have electrumcomics at gmail.com, and you can uh, you can hit us up there send with, whatever, with whatever dumb shit you want to send us. Well, thank you, Ben and Justin, or should I say Shoshana Cox and Sheena G, for being here with me on not only what I think will become the most important episode of Cinemodities, but is the first true installment in the in the series of The Good, The Bad, and The Richard Kelly. So, the thing that we are left with is how do we end this episode, and nothing's changed, even though we have Justin and Ben here. I am taking a unilateral approach on this stance. We need to play Teen Horniness is Not a Crime in Reverse. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. Okay, Justin, keep your, uh, keep your thoughts to yourself, and thank you guys once again. And we will see you next time, and I think next week, when we start a new series, which our audience is fully aware of, the soft start of Monstober. Get ready for Goosebumps, everybody. I know our audience is excited. Yeah, Goosebumps. I mean, I hope you guys like Goosebumps more than this movie, 
But at the time of this recording, I like this movie more than Goosebumps. So fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> Hey! Right.